The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior, and I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats, and since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Betty White, legend and until very recently a living legend, maintained an often weekly if not daily place in American homes and hearts from the 1940s all the way until her death in 2021. She was a legendary actress who starred in shows like Life with Elizabeth, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Golden Girls, Hot in Cleveland, and so much more. Primarily a comedic actress, she would also kill it in a drama and she was a favorite guest of many a late night talk show host and many a game show host. And she worked for eight decades. Eight decades. She built and maintained an unparalleled entertainment career. Betty won five Emmys, a Grammy, three American Comedy Awards, two Screen Actors Guild Awards, and took home God knows how many other trophies. In 2014, the Guinness Book of World Records confirmed she had the longest career ever as a woman in television. And she worked full-time for several years after that recognition. And she never stopped loving her work. She was passionate about entertainment until the end. She felt excitement and joy each day she showed up to work. From humble beginnings on radio shows to starring in movies and TV shows, Betty accomplished what she did, not through luck, but through hard work and perseverance. She wasn't just some sweet little lady. Well, she wasn't, you know, uh, only a sweet little lady. She was pretty damn sweet, but she was also a pit bull. She was tenacious. She turned down marriage proposals left and right, walked away from two marriages when guys tried to get in the way of her career. You were cool with the ride that Betty was on or you were off that ride. She wasn't going to let anyone or anything stop her from making a career in the television industry. Betty is an inspiring example to all of us about how hard work and determination pays off. She experienced multiple failures and heartbreaks. She even believed at one point that she would never work again, but she always picked herself back up and kept grinding. And it usually led to bigger and better things. Betty's entire life defied expectations. She built her career during a time when the culture around her strongly opposed working women. Despite that, she became a producer, founded her own successful production studio. She became one of the first and few female game show hosts. She continued working well after the time that the industry determined was a woman's prime. In addition to being hardworking, it helped that Betty was really, really fucking funny. 
a master of the comedic acting craft. The world mourned the loss of Betty on December 31st, 2021. She lived a life that so many people admired and was loved by millions. 99 years still didn't seem like enough. We wanted more Betty. And today you'll get some more. Today we'll discuss the world of Betty White beginning when TV was in its fledgling. What the hell are we supposed to do with this magic talking box days? We'll cover her remarkable life, her career, and so much more in today's She What? I knew I liked her, but now I fucking love her. Showbiz biography edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, the Master Sucker, former Betty White, pool boy, current deep state puppet, crisis actor, acting coach, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. May the gods of the suck first protect me. Last week's episode, shitting on crisis actor conspiracies, uh, is getting too many downloads. Our most downloaded episode in the first few days of release ever, and now I'm nervous. I might have uh, just had my name added to some uh, more fuck that guy as part of the Illuminati lists. Extra people thinking I'm some uh, Antifa terror cell leader or something. So that's fun. Uh, speaking of fuck that guy, real quick, uh, fuck Putin. Uh, my heart is with the Ukrainian people, as is the heart of anyone who has a heart. Uh, I feel terrible, obviously, for the people of Ukraine. We'd already announced given to a non-Ukrainian charity for March weeks ago, uh, recording scared to death in advance. So they won't be the bad magic charity this month, but they will be next month. Uh, feel bad for the people of Russia, too. I don't think most of them like Putin any more than the rest of the world does. Uh, he's a ruthless tyrant. Death to tyrants, death to Putin. I truly hope that motherfucker is taken out by, by one of his own for what he's doing, what he's done, and that his death is, uh, you know, ideally prolonged and painful. Uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to suck his terrible life one day. And, you know, if he dies soon, you know, wraps it up, uh, we can do that soon. So if anybody wants to do us a favor, you know, you could kill him. Uh, I'll be glued to my uh, news feed, like most of you, I imagine, hoping for miracles in the coming days, weeks, months, and hopefully not years. A uh, couple quick announcements, and then some nice, fun escapism today. Yay, escapism from time to time, right? I'll announce the Bad Magic Charity for March next week. Uh, too many other announcements today. Uh, hoping I had fun performing for the first time in Oklahoma City this past weekend at the Bricktown Comedy Club. I'm guessing I did. So, uh... Okay, thanks in advance as I record this. Uh, I got six shows coming up in Atlanta in the punchline or at the punchline and in it. I'll be in it. Uh, March 17th through 19th, uh, Intimate Club, three or four shows already sold out as I record this. So if you're going to come, you know, get those tickets. Comedy Zone in Charlotte coming up after that, March 24th to the 26th. Fun room. Hoping we can fill it up for five shows. Uh, It's a big room. Uh, More dates at dancummins.tv. Special thanks to Chicago and Salt Lake City. Show on June 11th at Talia Hall. Sold out in Chicago, so we added a second. Uh, sh- should be added by the time this comes up. And then uh, added a show in Salt Lake City in uh, in May uh, because the other one we added sold out. So thank you. So we're doing the 7th now. Uh, quick reminder that Hot Wet Bad Magic Summer Camp ticket sales go live March 15th, 12 o'clock noon Pacific time at badmagicmerch.com. So uh, very excited for that. Should be ho- I'm hoping the weather's perfect. Uh, doesn't matter, even if it's not. We'll have a warm summer rain. We'll have a great time. Uh, when those tickets are sold out, both VIP and general admission, they are gone. Uh, capacity just is what it is, just so you know. And now one last thing. Uh, more new merch than normal hitting the badmagicmerch.com shop this week. Uh, new Amish merch made from the hair of Sister Mary and the pubes of men returning from Rumspringa. Authentic Amish-made tea. 
Asterix, made by us. Sure to raise questions. Who is that? Why is that on a shirt? Are you okay? There's two designs to choose from, one of which was designed by sucker Brent Muir, a cool kingpin-inspired tee, and the other is the only known phone, uh, photo of Brother Danadaya to exist, likely an ancestor. Uh, also, six by, 16 by 20 acrylic art print, because why not? You can put it in your mudroom, barn, or outhouse. Uh, and also, uh, let me hit this button for a second. Yes, a Whipple Prison Riot Edition tee. Fuck you and fuck your family. Drink Whipple. Standard edition inmate tees in black or orange available now at badmagicmerch.com. Be glad you're not in that New Mexico prison right this week with everything else going on. Uh, check it all out at badmagicmerch.com uh, once again. And now let's break down some Betty motherfucking white. Going to be a pretty straightforward structure to the show today. Uh, Going to intro her a little further, establish her very historic connection with the entertainment medium of television, then lay down a summary of the history of the development of television, and then march the timeline of Betty's wonderful and inspiring life. Uh, a lot of comedy in there before recapping and diving into a bunch of updates revolving around primarily last week's 2017 uh, Las Vegas shooting episode. So here we go! Uh, Betty White had a career in television that will truly never be replicated. It actually can't be. She literally grew up with the formation of the television industry and was one of the very first women to become a celebrity thanks to television. Uh, TV will never be the same as it once uh, once was when Betty was one of its first stars. Uh, TV just doesn't have the clout now as it did during the early days of Betty's career. You know, the medium just uh, very diluted now. Way more shows. For numerous years of Betty's working career in the U.S., there were only a handful of channels, just four, just four channels for a number of years. And those four channels didn't even broadcast 24 hours a day. They didn't have enough programs to fill the time. They were dark throughout the night. They were dark for parts of the day as well. Uh, They were not competing against, you know, 12 and 18 screen cineplexes for eyeballs. More importantly, they were not competing against the entirety of the Internet or gaming consoles. In 2019 alone, 532 different original scripted television series were released in the U.S. between cable and streaming platforms. And that doesn't include reality shows, docu-series, and game shows. Uh, It definitely doesn't include all all the extra films that are produced now. That doesn't count the uh, backlog of essentially every show ever made that you can access now between YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO Max, etc. As of 2018, you could watch over 1,500 different TV series just on Netflix alone. There's so much fucking content out there with more and more countries adding programs to the content See, uh, I'm currently watching a German series called Dark right now. You can spend every waking minute of every day and not get much sleep watching nothing but new episodes of scripted shows and you can do that for the rest of your life and never run out of programming. But back when Betty White first appeared weekly on TV, she was one of a very small group of people showing up in people's living rooms. Right? Odds were literally anyone who had a TV and watched it regularly in the 1940s or 1950s, they watched Betty White, and quite a bit. Like, how wild is that? How wild is it for someone who was still working in TV uh, just a year or two ago to be on TV all the time in the 1940s and 50s? Uh, Betty White was a, a true TV pioneer. And I say, yeah, I throw the 1940s, 1949. I'll get to that in the timeline. It, she came in at the end of the 40s. I was giving her a little bit too much time there. Uh, TV, as we know, it didn't even exist at the time of the birth of my favorite golden girl. Today's show wrote in their honorary article on Betty, uh, White's ascension in a medium that didn't exist at the time of her birth parallels the role the small screen would wind up having on the world. According to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History curator, Ryan Lintelman, 
The early years of broadcast television were full of innovation as American entertainers and producers adapted existing radio and stage formats to the new medium. And Betty was a fantastic innovator, as you'll find out today. I had no idea she did so much or or that she worked so much, not just like uh, longevity in terms of years, but like she was working a lot of hours for a lot of different weeks for a lot of those years. Uh, She blazed such a trail as opposed to following the trails of those who had worked ahead of her. Uh, The trails were just being cleared and carved when she started in TV. The first movie was made in 1878, but not really a movie. Not at all, actually. Uh, A few seconds of a horse galloping. Uh, That's that's it. A variety of still images captured by numerous cameras and then, you know, able to be played back to, you know, show motion. More like the equivalent of, you know, drawing uh, uh, little stick figures in the bottom corner of uh, a notebook and then flipping the pages and seeing it move. On October 14th, 1888, a French artist and inventor, Louis Le Prince, filmed 1.66 seconds of his family in motion. And this quote unquote film would become known as the Round Hay Garden Sea. Garden scene. <laughs> Very different than a garden scene. I don't know what that is. Uh, it wasn't until 1927 that the first talkie was shown in theaters. A feature length movie with both a synchronized recorded music score as well as limp lip synchronous sh- singing and speech in several isolated sequences. And Betty was five years old when it came out. Uh, jumping ahead to 1939, classic movies like The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind are now shown in theaters. And that same year, Betty made her first debut on the small screen. She later wrote in her 2010 autobiography, Here We Go Again, My Life in Television. Television was a fledgling, barely out of the nest when I began taking my first stumbling professional steps. Since we were both beginners, we started hanging out together. And we have, more or less, stuck with each other ever since. In the beginning, TV was highly experimental, way more so than I realized before this week. Production companies tried out all sorts of formats, many that would never work today, uh, to see what could get and hold an audience's attention. And this worked out well for Betty in her career because she was uh, versatile, uniquely talented, willing to try almost anything, uh, able to uh, improv, host, model, sing, be funny, be dramatic, play the lead, play background, keep track of some fucking bear cubs in between takes, whatever. Not kidding about the bears. Uh, she wasn't pigeonholed and typecast because uh, that really wasn't being done yet. If you wanted to keep working in TV when it was getting started, you had to be versatile, you know, work in different, you know, genres. And that allowed Betty to figure out what she was best at and then find her niche later. Also helped a young, hardworking, ambitious hustler, uh, you know, have some creative control and test out new show ideas herself. B-Dog, as her friends called her, uh, worked in uh, all the popular genres of her day. Sitcoms, variety shows, game shows, lengthy sitcoms uh, with long-range plots and characters. And, of course, no one called her B-Dog. But for the first 20 years of her TV career, White was actually her middle name. I didn't know that until this week. Uh, Her full stage name was Betty White Power. She picked power because, obviously, it sounds powerful. And she needed to come across, you know, as powerful in a very male-dominated profession. And Mrs. White Power was a force to be reckoned with. People used to love White Power. A lot of White Power fans in TV's early days. Uh, But then that term, you know, was co-opted by white supremacists. And she had to move away from White Power and just be white. (laughs) And everyone knows I'm full of shit about Betty White Power, right? That's so fucking funny to me for some reason. If for 20 years before that term was what it is now, she was introduced as Betty White Power. Tonight on the Al Morgan Show, we have special guest Betty White Power. Singing Dixieland. (laughs) Nothing like that's in her past that I could find. Uh, When Betty really got started professionally in TV, the uh, genre of American TV sitcoms was less than three years old. Britain had the very first one in 1946. Pinwright's Progress. 
about a store proprietor's many misadventures. Uh, Ten episodes broadcast live back before the ability to record those episodes existed. So we don't have a record of it, just the way they broadcast things initially. I, I didn't know that was a thing. No reruns. Like if you missed an episode, you missed it forever. True must-see TV was more like a play broadcast into uh, a bunch of people's homes. Uh, Mary Kay and Johnny, the first American sitcom, was debuted on November 18th, 1947. Centered on a young married couple in New York, real-life married couple, Johnny and Mary Kay Stearns. Uh, It was 15 scripted minutes a week, performed live for a studio audience. You know, if you blew your line, stayed blown forever. Most of the first sitcoms and variety shows were existing radio shows adapted for TV. The 1950s saw the first true hit shows that would later, you know, be able to go into syndication like I Love Lucy, which debuted in 1951. Uh, That was the first sitcom actually filmed in front of a live TV audience, making replay possible. I Love Lucy was also the first to use a multi-camera format, you know, and one of the first to be produced in Hollywood instead of in New York. For every hit show like I Love Lucy, there was dozens of forgettable ones. Most uh, actors, according to one critic, were generally considered amateurs playing at home movies. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, All the most talented writers and producers were still on Broadway. TV producers in the early days were usually new writers trying to make it big in a new medium. It was very Wild West, kind of like the podcast industry has been recently. Uh, Betty worked with a lot of those uh, new writers who would then work again and again with her as her career marched on decade after decade. Betty White would continue starring on TV after the age of 40, which back then was generally considered the end of a woman's career. Ah, the good old days when life made sense, right? <laughs> JK, gosh dang. Uh, no, that's not true. Lucifina just filed a complaint. Uh, she continued earning lead roles after the age of 50, and then after 60, 70, 80, and even after the age of 90. Ah, I'd love it. Betty's roles later in her career emphasized or worked with her age instead of downplaying it. As Betty aged, she began showing people a new edge to her personality, uh, witty humor, some dirtier jokes, some darker jokes, and America loved her more than ever. And now a woman having a variety of roles offered to her in her quote-unquote senior years is becoming more and more common. Right, 70-year-old actress Lisa Emery, who plays Darlene Snell in Ozark, great show, uh, great performance. She has a pretty sexual role in that series. Uh, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, plays sexually active women on Netflix as uh, Gracie and Frankie. Tomlin's 82, Fonda is 79. And uh, and Betty White Power, come on! No, uh, she helped uh, change the roles that were deemed acceptable for women to play on TV tremendously. For example, a TV historian at PBS noted of her role in Life with Elizabeth, a sitcom Betty starred in from 1953 to 1955. White broadened the typical range and role of the ditzy housewife character with the winking self-awareness and pro-feminist irreverence. Gifted with the winning smile and easy charm and impeccable comic timing that made her a perfect fit for the medium. She was also a quietly versatile comedic actor, capable of making subtle changes in her voice and mannerisms without seeming to break a sweat or lose her lightness of touch. She could play slyly sweet, calculatedly cloying, likably loopy, or sometimes all of the above. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, which is uh, a show that Betty co-starred in, of course, was a story about a woman working in a male-dominated world. The show reflected Betty's career in a way. She made a name for herself by herself in the male-dominated world of TV production. Betty's career in life promoted equality between men and women. Smithsonian Magazine wrote about Betty saying, White was a groundbreaking television comedian bringing the inner lives of American women to the forefront in popular sitcoms across seven decades. That's such a crazy timeline. She paved the way for female comedians to express themselves fully, tackle unexpected roles, as well as take on production roles, as she did beginning in the early 50s. All right. 
Enough of uh, sucking Betty's dick for a second. Let's take a closer look now at the television industry to establish the background for Betty's career, followed by the timeline of her life from beginning to end. As previously mentioned, Betty grew up with the TV industry. So let's briefly go over the history of TV, as well as big milestones in the industry. Who the fuck invented the TV? Martin Rosdale. Bismarck, North Dakota, 1923. Martin owned and operated the small city's first electronics repair shop, which basically meant he worked uh, almost exclusively on radios for the roughly 8,000 people living there at the time. And he decided rather than sell radios manufactured by some big company for a small profit, what if he made his own radio? So he did. And when uh, he one day was tinkering around with uh, adding some reflective glass for aesthetics, he caught movement in the glass. The receiver was displaying the audio waveforms. Now he knew video could be transmitted through the air, so adapting a movie camera by incorporating large quantities of quartz into its iris, adding selenium, magnesium transistors, rewiring its focusing mechanism with some copper tubing and more mirrors, he was able to have his wife move around in front of this contraption, see her movements in the first TV he'd made and set up a few rooms away. He was able to trick her into believing that he had to be naked because the quartz couldn't transmit fabric, and he thought to himself, I bet I could get people to pay to watch this shit. And I'm going to try and lie less often going forward. Uh, there's no Martin Rosdale. No individual person can be credited, credited actually, with inventing television. Uh, much of what I just said was gibberish, by the way, as, as well. Not, not only just a lie, but just pure nonsense. I just uh, picked a bunch of random words and struggled together. Uh, many scientists and engineers made small contributions that led to modern television sets. Started way back in the 1830s. All right, the, the, the technology that would be used. Samuel Morse developed a telegraph which allowed written communication across wires. Then in 1876, many years later, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, which allowed the human voice to travel long distances over these wires. Both men speculated about the possibility of transmitting images the same way. How the fuck did anyone figure out how to communicate across distances through any method other than yelling? It boggles my mind, right? Like when you're starting from scratch with that tech, like how do you ever think you can do that? Thank God for scientists. Uh, In 1884, Paul Nipkow, German researcher, invented a system to send images over wires with spinning disks, which he called the electric telescope. Very impractical to send an image long distance because it required a lot of machinery, but a great step toward being able to do that. And I thought it was interesting to think about how oftentimes the most incredible inventions in the history of humanity, right, started off as impractical novelties, right? Like look up pics and videos of the first airplanes. If I would have seen one of those death traps that only stayed up in the air for a few seconds, I might have easily thought, probably would have easily thought, what a complete waste of time. Fuck it. Stupid. You're wasting your life. And many of the early prototype inventors lost money on aviation. But those who followed them would change the world in a dramatic way. You know, many dramatic ways. They changed the way, you know, international business could be conducted, how wars were fought. They'd make tourism economies possible for many nations, open up space exploration and on and on and on. Similarly, with TV, we wouldn't be watching high-definition CGI futuristic programming on our phones, watching from some remote area linked up to Wi-Fi, beamed down from satellites, no less in some instances, if if it weren't for early contributors like the Paul Nipkaus of the world, right? The first public station, TV station in the world, launched in 1934 in Berlin, was named in his honor. But he didn't make a dime in the TV biz. His patent expired by the time anyone got serious about using what he'd come up with to help build the first TVs. In the early 1900s, Russian physicist Boris Rossing and Scottish engineer Alan Archibald Campbell Swinton. Ah, fucking easy on the extra names, buddy. How about Al Swinton? Uh, worked independently to improve the Nipkow system. Uh, Swinton had an article published in the June 18, 1908 issue of Nature called Distant Electric Vision. And he wrote, 
and kudos to anyone listening who actually truly understands what the fuck he was talking about here. This, this part of the problem of obtaining distant electric vision <laughs> can probably be solved by the employment of two beams of cathode rays, one at the transmitting and one at the receiving station. Uh, synchronously deflected by the varying fields of two electromagnets placed at right angles to one another and energized by two alternating electric currents of widely different frequencies so that the moving extremities of the two beams are caused to sweep simultaneously over the whole of the required surface within the one-tenth of a second necessary to take advantage of visual persistence. Indeed, so far as the receiving apparatus is concerned, the moving cathode beam has only to be arranged to impinge on a suitably sensitive fluorescent screen and given suitable variations in its intensity to obtain the desired result. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how you obtain the desired results, you fucking idiots. You just arrange the cathode beam with the right amount of fluorescent screen stuff, and you magnetize fucking laser guns, and the cathode death ray activates fucking TV robots in the box. Easy peasy. Uh, German physicist, Carl Braun, had invented cathode ray tubes, an important component of early TVs, and Swinton's system used them. And the earliest all-electronic TV system was built. Engineer Vladimir Zworkin worked as Rosin's assistant, and in 1923, he was employed by the Westinghouse Electronic Corporation, founded in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1886. And while there, Zworkin uh, applied for a patent for his iconoscope, which used cathode ray tubes to transmit images. Then in 1927, when Betty White was five years old, Scottish engineer John Baird gave the first demonstration of a television before 50 scientists in London, and he formed the Baird Television Development Company. In 1928, he completed the first transatlantic television transmission between London and New York, and the first transmission to a ship in the Atlantic. Baird also credited with the first demonstration of color and stereoscopic TV, which is basically 3D. 1929's work and demonstrated his system at a convention of radio engineers, uh, David Sarnoff, executive of Radio Corporation America, RCA, uh, was present, hired Zworkin to develop and improve TV tech for his company. Meanwhile, American inventor Philo Farnsworth, who'd been working on his own system, a vacuum tube that dissected images into lines, transmitted the lines and turned them into images. At the age of 21 in 1927, while living in the little town of Rigby, Idaho, woo! Uh, Farnsworth successfully transferred the first televised image. What was it? A simple line. A note to his buddy. The damn thing works. Uh, he then got into a legal battle with RCA, who claimed that Zworkin's 1923 patent took priority over Farnsworth inventions. Uh, he'd eventually win a legal battle in 1938, getting RCA to pay him a million bucks. And we could do a full suck on his life. He did all kinds of shit. The device he helped invent became incredibly culturally significant. Information and entertainment transmitted and digested in such a new way that continues to engross so many of us so thoroughly today. TV was originally regarded as just radio with pictures, but it would ultimately turn into something that was so much more. According to Britannica, radio in its early days was perceived as a technological wonder rather than a medium of cultural, cultural significance. The public quickly adjusted to radio broadcasting and either enjoyed its many programs or turned them off. Television, however, prompted a tendency to criticize and evaluate rather than a simple on-off response. It was revolutionary to both see and hear events as they were happening. Even if you were hundreds or thousands of miles away, crowds gathered on sidewalks in front of stores to watch TV, taverns with TV saw a surge in business, right? Sporting events went from tens of thousands of viewers to in stadiums to millions across the country. Imagine being the first person in your town or city to open up a sports bar. Like, what a fucking huge advantage you would have. 
I bet some people got rich just from being the first people to put TVs in their businesses. Uh, TV began to influence culture, parents, children, schools, churches, and the government. People became more and more involved in current events that weren't just happening in their neighborhood or town because they could see them as they were happening. Betty White wrote in her 1995 autobiography, 50 years ago when television made its entrance, no one possibly could have foreseen what impact it would have. For broadcasters at the moment, the preoccupying gamble was whether or not to commit big bucks for innovative equipment on the chance that the public would latch on. Would there be enough homes with television receivers to make producing shows worthwhile? Conversely, those at home had to decide if they could justify investing in an expensive major appliance to receive what few telecasts were currently available. Many established performers from other venues found the new medium made to order. Like radio, it offered a chance to go to the audience instead of the other way around. Ironically, the more people stayed home, the larger the audience became. Uh, Let's now take a look at a brief timeline of television milestones before jumping into uh, Betty White Power's life. So hard not, not to keep saying that. Uh, to not keep saying that. Uh, pre-time stuck timeline. Timeline now. In 1927, Philo Farnsworth, right, who we just met, patented the dissector tube, which would become a major component of the all-electronic television. September 11th, 1928, first TV drama, The Queen's Messenger, broadcast from Schenectady, New York, TV station WGY. 1929, Vladimir Zworkin, right, American scientist born in Russia, demonstrates the first practical electronic system for the transmission and reception of images. 1934, the Communications Act brought on the era of government radio regulation, or I'm sorry, brought on the era of government regulation of American airwaves. Radio stations were ordered to operate in the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, was charged with enforcing this act. And this would soon apply to, you know, commercial TV stations as well. So glad that their puritanical rules don't apply to podcasting. And that the FCC uh, can suck my dick. But anyway, 1939, RCA's national broadcasting company, uh, NBC, uh, I've heard of it, begins regular telecasts from New York City. On April 30th of that year, with this broadcast of the opening ceremonies of the New York's World Fair, NBC began a regular television service, and by 1951, it would establish a coast-to-coast television network. It's crazy. It was as recent as, you know, 1951. It would have, uh, you know, very likely established one years earlier, but Hitler. World War II. Led to U.S. tech manufacturers, you know, prioritizing military tech over entertainment. World War II led to a huge decrease in commercial television productivity. And then the post-war era would mark the true beginning of the modern TV industry. In 1947, NBC began broadcasting two famous programs, Howdy Doody and Meet the Press. NBC is America's oldest media network, starting off as a radio network back in 1926. From 1947 to 1948, NBC and CBS, originally Columbia Broadcasting System, began 15-minute national newscasts. Camel News Caravan with John Cameron Swayze on NBC and Television News with Douglas Edwards on CBS. CBS, like NBC, started off as a radio network. One year later, 1927. Uh, ABC, uh, making sure uh, that I'm saying that right now. I gotta check myself real quick. I thought it was the other way around. I was certain. Come on. Um, oh, okay. Yep, I was right. All right. All right. Uh, ABC, the American Broadcasting Company, the third of America's big three, also started off in radio much later in 1943. Uh, they'd break into TV in 1948. Also in 1948, uh, variety show Texaco Star Theater made its de- uh, TV debut on NBC. And Toast of the Town, another variety show, premiered on CBS. Texaco Star Theater made Milton Berle more famous than radio already had, gave him the nickname of Mr. Television. Toast of the Town was renamed the Ed Sullivan Show 
and made Ed Sullivan a household name. Uh, Burl's show would run until 1956. Sullivan's show aired every Sunday night from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time until its cancellation in 1971. Uh, the Ed Sullivan Show, oh man, wildly culturally influential. Ed introduced the fucking Beatles to America. That show launched Elvis Presley into heartthrob status. It introduced and or brought into American homes uh, CCR, Janis Joplin, the Rolling Stones, Stevie Wonder, the Jackson 5, the Beach Boys, the Supremes, the Doors, so many other legendary musicians. Uh, Bob Dylan was supposed to make his first national appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, but refused to alter his lyrics of a song he was going to sing in any way to appease producers, talking John Birch paranoid blues, and he walked the fuck out. So there's Bob Dylan. Uh, Muppets made their first TV appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, Milton Berle, he was the male counterpart to Betty White in some ways. Uh, He worked in showbiz uh, for so many years, playing a small role in a 1914 silent film, The Perils of Pauline, when he was just six years old. And he would live until the age of 93, and he would act until the age of 91. I actually got a Milton Berle joke book as a gift uh, from my ex-wife's grandparents when I just started out in stand-up comedy. Not my my style, but the guy did have a lot of great one-liners. A committee is a group that keeps minutes and loses hours. What is this, an audience or an oil painting? Money can't buy you happiness, but it helps you look for it in a lot more places. Uh, One more. What's the difference between jam and marmalade? You can't marmalade your cock up someone's ass. Ho, ho. Funny's funny. If you don't like that, I hope a horse hate fucks your family to death. Ho, ho. Hey. Uh, kidding about the last one. That was insanity. I wish that was a joke that Milton Berle <laughs> had told a long time ago, right after he had a stroke or something. But I made it up. Uh, when Burl and White and Sullivan weren't on TV during those first TV years, or a handful of others, oftentimes no one was on TV until the fall of 1948. Uh, not uncommon to turn on your TV and find just a black screen. Because networks weren't broadcasting any programs. Uh, Prime time was 8 to 11 p.m. Eastern time. It was rare for networks to fill the rest of the day's time slots. Uh, TV sales were low because the TV cost about 400 bucks at the time, equivalent in purchasing power to uh, close to five grand today. 4,700 roughly. By the fall of 1948, almost all the primetime slots were taken up by ABC, CBS, NBC, and the fourth of the early networks, the Dumont TV Network. Yes, the forgotten Dumont TV network launched just before ABC did in 1942. Uh, it would last until 1965 before going belly up. It launched that first American uh, sitcom, Mary Kay and Johnny. In 1949, Sears Roebuck uh, sent out their first catalogs offering televisions. 1951, I Love Lucy premiered. Lucille Ball became television's first female, excuse me, superstar. Uh, she and Betty White became great friends in the 50s and would remain friends until Lucy passed away. 1952, Hear It Now, a successful radio program, became the TV program, See It Now. NBC introduced The Today Show, uh, and that's been running ever since. One of America's longest-running TV programs, the longest-running, is NBC's Meet the Press, running since 1947. Began as a radio show in 1945. Uh, 1953, a TV Guide hit newsstands. By this point, 53% of American households owned a TV. In April of 1954, court made its way into uh, TV with the broadcastings of the McCarthy hearings, live and in their entirety. By 1955, the game show craze was in full swing. Americans were obsessed with shows like The $64,000 Question, uh, Can Do, High Finance, and Nothing But the Truth. 1955-56 uh, marked the height of the Western era, Wyatt Earp, Tales of the Texas Rangers, Frontier, uh, Adventures of Jim Bowie, and Gunsmoke. My mom loved Gunsmoke. I watched it too. It was a great show. Uh, 1940s to 1960s considered the golden age of TV and Betty White power 
were <laughs> Betty White worked constantly in that era. I'm a child. Uh, Betty White really did work, yeah, constantly in that era. Uh, comedies, dramas were big in the 50s, while variety shows, game shows were more popular in the 60s. 1960s featured the first televised presidential debate, JFK, Richard Nixon, many credit television with turning the vote in Kennedy's direction. Uh, what a shame. You know, because if Nixon would have won, maybe he could have gotten shot in Dallas. And then way more drugs would be legal. And Kennedy could have maybe won uh, you know, the next election. Hard for me not to shit on Nixon whenever he uh, comes up in these, in these episodes. Uh, by 1960, 90% of U.S. households owned a TV. TVs blew up like cell phones would several decades later. In the early years, almost no one carried around one of those big brick early 90s saved by the Bell cell phones. But now, super fucking weird to meet someone who doesn't have a cell phone. I literally can't remember meeting anyone in the last couple decades who doesn't have a cell phone. Uh, also in 1960, The Flintstones premiered as the first animated TV series. Six decades later, two jackasses would call themselves Fred and Barney on a podcast called Is We Dumb. 1961, President Kennedy gave the first live televised press conference. 1962, uh, the launching of Telestar 1, a communication satellite, made live transmission possible globally for the first time. 1963, a poll revealed that Americans got more of their news from TV than from newspapers. And a lot of Americans still get their news from TV. In a 2021 Pew Research Center poll, even though 86% of those polled said they got their news from a smartphone, computer, or tablet, either often or sometimes, 68% said they still get their news from TV at least sometimes, and 40% said they do so often. November 1963, news coverage of JFK's assassination shocks the nation and uh, changes how people view the power of TV. This is crazy. An unreal 93% of American households with TVs tuned in to watch live coverage of the president's funeral procession. America mourned together in a way not possible without TV. In 1964, CBS paid $28 million to the NFL for broadcast rights. Started that Monday night football, not too much long later. Uh, January 15, 1967, the first Super Bowl televised, the Green Bay Packers beat the Kansas City Chiefs. July 20th, 1969, the entire world witnesses Neil Armstrong take his first steps on the moon or in a studio. Come No, on the moon. Uh, an estimated 600 to 720 million people worldwide watch this happen on TV at the same time. World population was 3.6 billion. 20% of them watched together. Also in 1969, Sesame Street premieres. Uh, even though the first color TV was made in 1953, it wasn't until the end of the 60s that it became uh, you know, the norm for shows to be shot and broadcast in color. Uh, end of the 60s, early 70s. Uh, by the early 70s, m- you know, more color TVs were sold than black and white TVs for the first time. 1977, the VCR was sold to consumers everywhere. Fuck yeah, bro. Millions of dads soon began hiding porn around their homes and millions of sons and probably more daughters than we realize began finding and watching that porn. Uh, these were the early days of television when Betty you know, began her career and rose to stardom. By the 80s and 90s, the power of being a TV star was starting to wane a bit. Thanks to cable TV, right? HBO launched in 72, Showtime in 76, Cinemax 1980, MTV in 81, Playboy TV in 82, and on and on and on. An explosion of new cable and satellite TV channels. Roku now offers over 3,000 different channels. It's fucking crazy. And now you can watch any movie ever made, any video ever uploaded to the web on your TV, on your phone. Things have changed a lot since there was four networks in the 50s. But the focus of TV, entertaining consumers, has stayed pretty much the same. And Betty White was there for all of it. Now let's meet this entertainment queen right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? 
sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. 
It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now time for Betty White's Not Powers, Incredible Life and Career. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. January 17th, 1922, Betty Marion White, working hard not to add power, was born in Oak Park, Illinois. Her parents were Horace and Tess White. Uh, Horace was an electrical engineer and traveling salesman, and Tess worked inside the home. And I love the combo of Horace and Tess. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like an old, like, uh, I don't know, maybe from the 80s or something, probably older than that, like afternoon drive time radio duo. You're listening to Horace and Tess here on Milwaukee's number one easy listening adult contemporary radio station, 101.1 Cheese FM. So, Tess, how about that new Michael McDonald track, Hail Mary, off his new Wide Open album? The former Doobie brother, he's still got it. Uh, we're going to play it in a second. Uh, don't go anywhere after this song. It's Finger Lickin' Friday, and we're going to be giving away a $50 KFC gift certificate to caller number five to kick off the five o'clock soft rock block. Take it away, Triple M. Don't you think it's I still wonder why After all this time Not a day goes by That my heart Doesn't wonder If it's still worth a try One more And you're listening to Michael McDonald on Horse and Test 101.1 Cheese FM Milwaukee's number one easy Oh, I'll stop uh, So anyway, Horse and Test Getting busy back in 1921, right? Doing some roaring 20s booty rocking. Betty was born 11 months into her parents' marriage, their first and only child. And in her autobiography, Betty later wrote about uh, what an awesome childhood she had. Her parents had such a happy marriage, never fell out of love with each other, 42 years of marital bliss. And I'm not surprised. I would have been shocked to hear that Betty White was born in some like real traumatic childhood situation. Uh, Oak Park, where she was born, a suburb of Chicago, bordering Chicago to the west, with an estimated 54,583 people per the 2020 census. Uh, some famous Oak Park residents, Edgar Rice Burroughs, author of Tarzan, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, uh, of course, Betty White. Uh, the list is actually huge. Longtime funny sitcom star and stand-up comic Bob Newhart, also born there. Uh, Bob is uh, still, uh, still doing great, 92 years old. Uh, their paths crossed numerous times. Bob made his first televised stand-up TV appearance on this night show with Jack Parr uh, in April of 1960, and Betty White was a guest on that episode. And then they would work together in the early 90s on a two-season sitcom Bob had called uh, Bob, where Betty played his boss for all of season two, and one more time on the finale of Hot in Cleveland many years later. Uh, 1924, when Betty was just two years old, the White family moves from Illinois to Los Angeles, California. Betty grew up as an only child, as she put it, spoiled rotten, but taught to appreciate it. 
Her mom, Tess, was an optimist and taught Betty from a young age to always focus on the positive. Uh, Betty clearly listened. Maybe a nature-nurture combo here. Maybe she got Tess's positive genes and then had her positive, uh, you know, attitude reinforced by mom's at-home example. Her dad, Horace, gave Betty her lifelong love of animals. Once they'd moved out to California, he would take the family camping in Yellowstone or the High Sierras every year. They'd always see lots of wildlife. Uh, Before she ever wanted to be an entertainer as a little girl, Betty wanted to be a forest ranger. Horace and Tess also uh, had a soft spot for stray animals. A huge soft spot. Betty uh, wrote... I'll bet I was the only kid in the block whose parents would come home with the dog and say, Betty, he followed us home. <laughs> Please, can we keep him? That's very funny. Uh, at one point, Betty would tell a People Magazine interviewer they ended up with 26 dogs living in their house at one time. God, I love dogs, but holy fuck. That's way too many dogs. Like, if one runs away, I would think it would take weeks or months to even realize it was missing. How, how would you make sure that that many dogs were uh, all getting fed? Uh, it turned out to be too much for the White family. And one day, Horace did put 25 of those dogs down with his 22 rifle. And Betty said she would never forget it. She said it was the happiest day of her life. Nothing made Betty White power happier than killing some fucking pets. Uh, JK, I have no idea what happened to all those dogs. Betty never said. At some point in early childhood, Betty decided that maybe instead of being a forest ranger, she'd rather be some kind of entertainer or at least work in the entertainment business. She originally wanted to be an opera singer, but knew she didn't have the voice for it. Weird to uh, imagine Betty White as an opera star. Uh, Betty's biggest inspiration for a time was actress and singer, uh, great opera voice, Jeanette McDonald. Jeanette, huge star, da- a star, darling, uh, of the 1930s, appearing in a number of big musical films. During the 30s and 40s, she starred in 29 feature films, four that were nominated for Best Picture Academy Awards. And she had three gold opera records. Uh, Betty said in a 2018 documentary, I didn't like Jeanette McDonald, I was. Jeanette McDonald. Uh, for her grade school years, Betty attended Horace Mann Grammar School in Beverly Hills, where she got involved with the theater. Uh, way more Horaces than I expected to show up in this or any episode. Uh, that school was established in 1929 when she was seven, so she's one of the first kids to go there. It was for K through eighth grade. It's still there today, serving K through fifth graders. Uh, she later wrote, my big ambition was to be a writer until I wrote myself into the lead in our graduation play at Horace Mann Grammar School. It was then that I contracted showbiz fever, showbiz, uh, for which there is no known, no known cure. I love that she had different, you know, big dreams. Park ranger, opera singer, writer, actress. She was passionate about what she was, uh, about her life, you know. Uh, Betty graduated from Beverly Hills High School in 1939. She sang A Spirit Flower by Louis Campbell Tipton at the graduation ceremony. Afterwards, she and the rest of her class were invited to take part in experimental TV broadcasts at the old Packard building in downtown L.A., Singing songs from The Merry Widow, star, uh, starring her one-time idol, right, Jeanette McDonald. And Betty was ecstatic to sing the same songs as her idol. The show was only transmitted through six floors of a building. Parents and friends gathered to watch on the first floor uh, while the kids sang on the sixth floor. So she was really an early pioneer of TV. During World War II, Betty served in American Women's Voluntary Services. Right, TV dreams get put on hold. She drove a delivery truck that took supplies to soldiers manning gun emplacements in the hills of Santa Monica and in the Hollywood Hills. And yes, there were gun emplacements in the hills of both Santa Monica and Hollywood and many other places around LA, right? There was a real concern that the Japanese would bring World War II to the American West Coast. And, you know, they wanted to, they tried to. But thanks to the US military, they never really pulled that off after that surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, Betty wrote, I had my driver's license for about 20 minutes. Nonetheless, I drove a PX truck carrying toothpaste, soap, candy, etc., to the various gun placement outfits that had been set up in the hills of Hollywood and Santa Monica. 
The Women's Volunteer Services was uh, founded in the UK in 1938 to prepare women for civil defense work. By September, the WVS in the UK had 336,000 members. The numbers increased to a million during the war, and they recruited women for things like air raid precaution services, running field kitchens, uh, rest centers for bombing victims, providing supplies for soldiers at railway railway stations, uh, escorting evacuated children, running clothing centers, operating carpools, helping salvage belongings from bombed houses, working in hospitals, clinics, and so much more. They repaired up to 38,000 pairs of socks a week for soldiers, randomly. Uh, And in 1940, Alice Throckmorton McLean, a woman from New York, well, she organized the American version of the WVS, going on to recruit a sizable organization to prepare for the uh, the home front for war. By the time of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, McLean had more than 18,000 members. These women trained in all kinds of shit too, right? Driving ambulances, evacuating crowds, mobile kitchen operation, first aid, uh, emergency services, automobile repair, on and on. Uh, you know, they also provided uh, relief and food services for armed, forced, uh, armed forces post, disaster workers, wounded servicemen, worked as fire watchers, uh, crop pickers, drivers, photographers, and so much more. And the American version of the WVS, the AWVS, made more than a million new or reconditioned articles of clothing for servicemen in hospitals. They published booklets, conducted classes for housewives on how to preserve and repair clothes, sold more than a billion dollars worth of war bonds and stamps. By 1945, they had more than 353,000 members. And one of those members was Betty White Power. I mean, Betty White. And while uh, hot young Betty, and she was super hot, was working with a bunch of hot young hunky GIs, she got engaged to a soldier in November of 1942. After he left to fight, the two wrote each other letters as often as they could, but then after not seeing each other for two years... Betty said she chickened out and wrote a breakup letter. She returned her ring to Paul's mother. She wanted to wait for some dick, right? She wanted dick and she wanted dick now. There's nothing wrong with that. Do not slut shame Betty White. She never said that, but I believe it's partially true. She was a vivacious 21, 22 year old. We like dudes. Why wouldn't she? Hey, Lucifina. Still in the AWVS, Betty now met her uh, her future first husband. There's the words. Dick Barker, a P-38 pilot. And uh, Frederick Richard Dick, uh, Frederick Richard, a.k.a. Dick Barker, I told you she was looking for Dick, born on August 16th, 1914. He met Betty at a rec hall where the AWVS girls went to dance, play games with the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And all kinds of games were played. Uh, the two got engaged and uh, married on July 7th, 1945. Betty was 23. Then with the war winding down and Dick done with his service, the new couple moved to Dick's Chicken Farm. Get, get some of Dick's chickens. Get those Dick chickens uh, in rural Ohio. She didn't live there long. Betty described living on the farm as a nightmare. She didn't want Dick bad enough to clean a chicken coop to get some. They were married for only about six months. Uh, Betty divorced Barker on December 19th, 1945, and later said, I would not have married my first husband. Uh, I married my first because we wanted to sleep together. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Lasted six months, and we were in bed for six months. The marriage with Barker helped me to appreciate the real thing when it came along. I love her. I love the honesty, right? Love the attitude. Yeah, they fucked like crazy for six months, guilt-free, because they were married. Then the sex wasn't worth, you know, living uh, around a bunch of fucking chicken shit. She was out. Betty was upset about the divorce, saying it hurts to fail at something so important and telling yourself it's all part of the learning process doesn't help one damn bit at the time. After the war and her divorce, now she refocuses on showbiz and is determined to build a life for herself in LA. Towards the end of the war, Betty got involved in the Bliss Hayden Little Theater run by Hollywood actors, Leela Bliss and Harry Hayden. Uh, Purpose of the theater was to give young people an opportunity to perform in front of an audience. And Betty paid 50 bucks to join. Back when 50 bucks was more like 750 bucks today. Potential actors paid the fee, auditioned, 
either got uh, a role in the show or the chance to work backstage, some kind of production role. Betty showed up, auditioned her, her sweet little ass off, and got the lead role in Spring Dance. Fuck yeah, bro! Uh, she loved performing, realized this is what she was meant to do for the rest of her life. She did so well that Leela Bliss, Harry Hayden, personally offered to uh, toss her salad, shower or no shower. Uh, no, they offered her the lead role of Ruth in their production of Dear Ruth now and doesn't have to pay a, a fee to perform this time. You, you get to perform for free this time. Uh, on opening night, uh, a showbiz talent agent, Lane Allen, was watching and he complimented her performance after the show. Then he returned for the closing performance and asked Betty out on a date. He was extra interested in her. Lane was born in 1914 in Toronto. His uh, real name, Albert Edward Wooten. Uh, really changed it up. Lane was an actor, but soon learned that agents had more job security. And after going on a few dates, Betty and Lane fell in love. He wanted to get married, but she was afraid to get married again so soon. She wanted to focus on her career. So she traveled around to various radio show offices on their casting days, right? Grind, 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 putting herself out there, making sacrifices. And uh, most of the time, she was told he didn't have openings. But one day, she's invited to speak to a producer, and Betty enters the office of the ad agency Needham, Lewis, and Brorby, who sponsored the radio comedy The Great Gildersleeve. Uh, that ad agency, still around today, actually, now known as DDB Worldwide, much better name, headquartered in New York City. Uh, Betty met producer uh, Fran Van Hartisfelt, uh, who told her that uh, she had to be part of the American Federation of Radio Artists Union to get any work. This union will later become AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, will then later merge with SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, to become SAG-AFTRA. I've been a member for years now. Uh, Yay, union health insurance. Uh, In order to join the union, she had to have a job, so Hartsfeld uh, offered her a one-word line in a parquet commercial. Betty later wrote, that kind of altruistic above-and-beyond gesture, or gesture, uh, doesn't happen often, but once it does, you must always remember to pass it on if you ever get the chance. Because commercials were live back then, Betty's job was just to say, parquet, on each... (laughs) On each broadcast of the great Gildersleeve. Just wait around. And then somebody point at her. Parquet. Uh, and then she did that over and over again. Awesome. Uh, she earned $37.50 for the job. But it cost $69 to join the union. So she had to borrow money from her dad to get in the junior, uh, union. And Horace, you know, happily loaned it to her. Even though her whole job was just to say parquet, uh, young Betty was uh, nervous, terrified that she would mess up the line. I love this. Uh, she said she had fears that she'd accidentally say parfait instead of parquet. <laughs> or parfait. But she never messed it up. Uh, Betty soon moved on from the great Gildersleeve, earning roles in other radio shows like Blondie and This Is Your FBI, where she got to say more than one word. Uh, Betty and Lane were still dating, but she still didn't want to marry him yet. And then she received a job offer uh, for what would be a part in her first movie. She would be filming in the High Sierras for six weeks. So she decided to break up with Lane. Bye-bye. Get out of here, Lane. She traveled to the High Sierras to film the Daring Miss Jones, a movie about a girl who goes searching for her father in the wilderness. She played the main character's friend, and was asked to be both script girl and bear keeper, <laughs> in addition to her on-camera role, because the crew filmed with uh, two bear cubs. I love it. She had a major role in the movie, and had to keep an eye on bear cubs. That shit doesn't happen anymore today. Oh, and you must be Emma Stone. We are so excited to have you in our remake of Mice and Men. Uh, you're going to play Curly's wife like no one ever has. And I hope they told you, uh, you're also in charge of the rabbits and all the animals in the barn. Uh, Betty loved it. She loved animals. When Betty returned home, Lane sent her a package, a record of Carl Ravaza's I Love You for Sentimental Reasons, and now they're fucking back. He crushed it with that gift. And not only are they back to dating, now they, they get married two months later. From November 8th, 1947 to 1949, Betty would be married to soon-to-be former agent, casting director, and actor Lane Allen. 
right? The agency he worked at, NCAC, shuts down soon after they get married. Lane takes a job at a furniture store. It was hard on his ego. Betty's making more money than he is. She's in the entertainment you know, industry. He's selling recliners. And his male ego doesn't handle it well. He resents her growing career in an industry that had just you know, finished chewing him up and spitting him out. And they'll, they'll divorce when he uh, pressures her to quit working and raise a family. Uh, Betty later said, I wish I didn't have two bad marriages. They were probably my fault. I just didn't marry the right men. I had lovely relationships, but not anything in the league of Allen. She was building appreciation for her third husband, who you'll meet. Uh, there's something, there is something to that, right? Uh, not that I advocate jumping to divorce or that I'm trying to rationalize my own divorce, but I certainly would not appreciate so much of what I do appreciate about Lindsay if I had not been married to someone who wasn't right for me before. Uh, that can definitely be a silver lining when it comes to divorce. In 1949, Betty got her first job on TV. And here we go, the beginning of a seven decades long career. She did a guest spot on the Dick Haynes show. A lot of dick in this episode too. A television special, a lot of horse, a lot of dick. Television special for the uh, then popular LA radio veteran. She landed the gig after being invited to speak to a producer about a TV show. Producer uh, Joe Landis asked if she could sing, juggle, and stand on her head all while on top of a horse. And she said she said yes, even though she could definitely not do almost any of that. She said because... uh, you see, the cardinal rule in our line of work, at anybody, as any budding young hopeful can tell you, is that you do whatever the part calls for. Time enough to worry about how you're going to do it later, should you land the part. You know, so you say you can do anything. Yeah, so she had some balls. Uh, they weren't even pe- paying her for this role. It was just an opportunity to be seen on TV. She was going to participate in a special for Dick Haynes, right? The uh, KLAC radio disc jockey, Haynes at the Reigns. One of the top, <laughs> you're listening to Haynes at the Reigns. Uh, one of the top morning programs in LA and Betty was asked to sing on his first ever TV special. Uh, they let go of the horse riding shit, apparently. Haynes told Betty to pick two songs, show up in her wardrobe on the day uh, of to go over the numbers. Betty chose Somebody Loves Me and I'd Like to Get You on a Slow Boat to China. Betty's version uh, was never recorded, but I was curious, like, what the fuck is that song about? Uh, here's Kay Kaiser singing a bit of I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China uh, better than I thought it was going to be and more popular. Bette Midler, Barry Manilow, Paul McCartney, many others have actually uh, covered this song. So this is the kind of stuff she was singing when she first, first got on TV. Get you and keep you in my arms evermore Leave all your lovers on a faraway shore Here comes a chorus Out on the briny With that moon Big and shiny Melting your heart of stone uh-huh. Honey, I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China All to myself alone Okay. That's, that's way better. Than, I mean, I don't know. I know you might not like it, but that was, that was way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I thought it was going to be some old-timey, like, racist shit when we were talking about getting on a slow boat to China. I know what the fuck was going on with that title, but it's a sweet song. Uh, she said the performance wasn't her best, but everyone at the studio was kind to her and more importantly, saw talent and potential in the then 27 year old. And how crazy is it that she's, she's, you know, uh, went on to be on TV specifically, uh, for over 70 years and didn't really get started until her second marriage was ending. And she was, you know, uh, in her late twenties, 
Dick Haynes impressed enough, he recommended her for a new 15-minute comedy program, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Betty performed regular skits on the comedy show. Tom, Dick, see a lot of Dick in this. Tom, Dick, and Harry, a live weekly show, mostly improv. Uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry didn't last long, but, you know, work creates work. It led to more opportunities, and Betty soon got another job at the same TV station. And that show is not the origin of the phrase, any Tom, Dick, and Harry. No one knows for sure where that phrase came from. Uh, Also, when I hear that phrase, I always think of just Harry Dick. I just wanted to share that. Uh, Betty's next opportunity was a game show called Grab Your Phone. Grab Your Phone. Hey, everybody. It's another episode of Grab Your Phone. I love these titles. Uh, Four girls sat on a panel with phones. West Battersea, the host, asked the audience questions. The girls answered the phone as people called in, and contestants won $5 for each correct response. (laughs) I love how much early TV was like radio is now. Like, it came out of radio. Imagine a TV game show now being shot truly live, where you could actually, you could call in and actually see someone pick up your fucking phone call. You could see a young Betty White. This is Betty White. Uh, I have your phone. Or whatever the fuck they said. Uh, Betty was told not to disclose her salary on Grab Your Phone. She was promised 20 bucks a week while the other girls were supposedly just getting 10. She didn't know if that was true or just a tactic to underpay, underpay her. But she was happy for the paid work. I liked that the host name also was uh, West Battersea. Uh, your host, West Battersea. That's got to be a stage name, right? Is, is anyone actually named West Battersea? Uh, Betty loved working on game shows. She grew up playing games with her parents. Getting paid to play games with people on TV was a dream come, dream come true. Her appearance on Grab Your Phone uh, captured the attention of another L.A. disc jockey, Al Jarvis, who's launched a new daytime TV show called Hollywood on Television. A five-fucking-hour daily TV show. Five hours, in a, nonstop five hours. The show needed a Girl Friday, old-timey term for a female office assistant. Uh, get, me a, get me a Girl Friday. Uh, we got to get the show on the air. And he offered Betty the job, guaranteeing that she would uh, you know, also show up on TV at least once an episode. Shot five days a week. She's offered 50 bucks a week for the job. Uh, equivalent to about $600 a week now. And Betty later wrote, I had no way of knowing that my lifelong love affair with television had just begun. She'd work on Hollywood on television from 1949 to 1953. Wish I could have found footage to play some now. Uh, when Betty told her husband Lane the news, he was happy for-ish, but expressed concern about how much she was working. Uh, Betty wrote, I should have heard that first faint warning bell. Could it be that my taking a job when I could get one was okay, but an actual career for me was not high in his list of long-range plans? Nailed it! October of 1949, Betty began her work for the show. She was surprised by the lack of prep. Most of it was focused on meetings with advertisers rather than prepping the actual show content. Al Jarvis was a great salesman. His audience seemed to buy whatever he uh, advertised on his radio show. Sponsors eager to utilize his five hours of TV airtime now, five days a week to push products. Betty wasn't quite sure what uh, she was going to do, but Al Jarvis told her, all you have to do is respond when I talk to you. Just follow where I lead. And, uh, you know, once it got, got going, she went from just like, you know, the appearance to she was just with him the entire show. In November of 1949, Hollywood on television premieres for its first week. Betty will later describe the show as a television, uh, as television college. She worked Monday through Friday, five hours straight, mostly ad lib, televised the whole time, learned to think on her feet, keep an audience engaged for a long period of time. Show's format, pretty simple to start. Al Jarvis sat at a desk, Betty on one side, turntable on the other, opened the show, introduced Betty, played some music. He and Betty would then chat between records. Uh, and one cameraman filmed him for five hours straight. Guess they used uh, the bathroom during commercials, but they did the commercials, so no, I guess, I guess they just held it for five hours at a time. Uh, and again, basically, it was, a, it was a radio show or a podcast that happened to be televised. I, I love that there are now YouTube shows with much bigger production value than that. 
Uh, the show's initial format changed real quick. After just one week, the audience sent in tons of letters requesting uh, no more records. They just wanted to hear Al and Betty's conversations. By the end of the second week, no more music. Uh, so now they're just talking for five hours. As the show went on, Al and Betty would respond to viewer feedback. Uh, they would change the show based on what the audience wanted. You know, they'd bring in guest stars, interview them, excuse me, eventually uh, pulling people out the street for impromptu interviews. It sounds like more like a, a really long podcast than a TV show. Adorably, Betty's parents bought a TV so they could watch her daughter every day spend five hours with sweet, sweet Betty, good old horse and Tess. Uh, Betty still didn't own a TV. Uh, my folks do not listen to Time Suck every week to keep tabs on me. My mom would probably just, you know, weep <laughs> if she listened to any episode. Uh, be afraid to leave the house and run into someone who might have heard what filth her son had spewed. Mother, why? Uh, my dad's probably too busy killing people, getting away with it. You get it. I don't know exactly where he is right now. I don't know exactly where he's been for months. Uh, anyway, on Thanksgiving Day, 1949, Al told Betty the show was getting an extra 30 minutes a day, plus Saturdays now, six days a week, five and a half hours a day. Starting to turn into the fucking Truman Show. Right? Add a couple more hours, they're being filmed almost half the hours are awake. Uh, Betty's salary would increase a bunch from 50 bucks a week to 300 a week, the equivalent of around 3,500. She was elated. She never, she never felt exhausted, she said, by the long hours. A true extrovert energized her, maybe a bit of a workaholic, doing what she loved, right? Uh, she felt joy every day she worked. And working so much, she was, you know, getting a lot better. Betty's craft improved quickly on the show. She quickly realized that the golden rule was to never get caught reading a script. She memorized all her ad scripts, continued that practice throughout her career. Had a great memory. Uh, she would never use cue cards again after her first uh, you know, year or so on that show. Al Jarvis, great mentor to her. Uh, she would later say in, a in 1995 that he set a pace and precedent that holds me in good stead to this day. He told Betty to always make the audience feel like they were in the studio with her, to always let them in on jokes. He always advised her to avoid wearing, uh, or he also advised her to avoid wearing plungy necklines or tight sweaters. And to that, I say, boo, ow, boo, you fucked us. You fucked us out of Betty's prime cleavage years. You aborted so many boners. Al Boner abortion Jarvis. What a piece of shit. Uh, JK, of course. Uh, while her career was at an all-time high, Betty's marriage was deteriorating. Lane told her flat out he didn't want to be married to a career woman now. And Betty was like, well, then I'm gone. They agreed to split up and pursue a divorce. I wonder how often that used to happen in much more patriarchal times. I wonder how often that happens now. Uh, 1950, the American Federation of Radio Artists changed its name to the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, right? After Betty's salary increases to $400 a week as the result of union negotiations, also signs a seven-year studio contract promising her a, a $50 salary increase every year. So fuck yeah, bro. By the end of her seven years, she'll be making 750 bucks a week, the equivalent of about 7,500 a week now, almost 400K a year. 1951, Betty was offered a Sunday evening show called The Betty White Show. Uh, better than The Betty White Power Show. Uh, Betty read letters from viewers, responded to questions, sang songs, played music. The show was so successful that Al Jarvis wanted in. Oh, the old boor, boner aborter was back. I realize that nickname doesn't really make any sense on any level, but I just like to say it. Uh, he told Betty that they could do a one-hour show on Saturday nights after their normal all-day show. <laughs> Al had been wanting to break into a nighttime TV and now had an opportunity. The premise of a nighttime show was to showcase new talent or their nighttime show. And then uh, the winner would uh, come on to Hollywood on television during the day to perform as a paid guest. So now they're doing fucking <laughs> six days a week. They're doing five and a half hour a day shows and also doing another show together. Clearly, they got, clearly they got along all right. Uh, Betty and Al uh, began doing husband and wife sketches on Hollywood on television, playing the characters Alvin and Elizabeth at one point. 
audience loved the sketches because they were similar to a downsized version of the popular I Love Lucy. In 1952, Al leaves Hollywood on television to work for KABC on a daytime dance show for young people, and Eddie Albert is hired as the new host. Betty was sad to say goodbye to her longtime friend and mentor, but she liked Eddie. However, Eddie then left uh, after six months, and now Betty became the host of Hollywood on television, making her one of the first female TV hosts ever. She's now 30 years old, working 33 hours a week on live TV. So much screen time. By the time she had Golden Girls, acting must have just been, uh, you know, second nature to her, just effortless uh, in some ways. She was a natural and excelled in skits and songs, unflappable. She could roll with anything. Uh, Betty's time on Hollywood on television led to the founding of her own production company, Bandy Productions, named after her Pekingese bandit. Bojangles just became one of Betty White's biggest fans. He uh, very much approves. Uh, Betty worked with producer Don Federson and writer George Tibbles to create her new company. Betty knew George from his uh, work on The Betty White Show. Don worked for the TV station KLAC-TV. One morning, Betty and George received a message from station manager Don. He'd asked to uh, meet them for lunch. And at the lunch, Don told him uh, how much the audience liked the Alvin and Elizabeth sketches on on, uh, Hollywood on television and asked if they were interested in doing a half-hour show with those characters, with George as the writer. And Betty later wrote in her book, Can you picture a meeting like that today? No team of lawyers, agents, managers, representatives, or spouses. Just three people saying, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, the business has changed so much. Now every deal takes a big team of negotiators. Uh, And they weren't just putting together like a local commercial. You know, they were putting together a sitcom. Together they form, you know, Bandy Productions. Don comes up with the show's title, Life with Elizabeth. They hired Del Moore, a comedy actor, to play Alvin. Uh, Jack Nars, popular radio and TV personality, becomes the show's narrator. Life with Elizabeth premiered on October 7th, 1953, two years after the premiere of I Love Lucy. The early sitcom starred Betty as Elizabeth, a married woman with predicaments in life that tested her husband, and the show was an instant hit and would run until September 1st, 1955. Betty had now become one of the first female producers in Hollywood, uh, although she never thought of herself as a female producer. She'd say, I never even thought of it as being a, a different gender, you know? It was just you did whatever the job was and whatever job you could get. Life with Elizabeth was quasi-improvisational. Everything was filmed live, which led to occasional mishaps that you don't really see on TV much anymore. When Del Moore once forgot his lines, got flustered, uh, he just straight up left the stage. (laughs) And Betty had to improvise for 90 seconds until he returned. God, I bet she was pissed. I bet those 90 seconds felt more like 90 minutes. Uh, Did I mention while she filmed Life with Elizabeth, Betty was still busy with Hollywood on television. Six days a week, she would rehearse Elizabeth on Friday nights, do a run-through on Saturday before Hot was filmed, then film Elizabeth live that night after Hot was done being filmed. She was a fucking workhorse. She and Dell didn't get their scripts until Friday morning. They knew their lines, but if they forgot they knew how to play, you know, the lines, they would just play off each other and make the scene work. Many, many years later in 2013, in her essay for Film International, Gwendolyn Audrey Foster, professor, professor of film studies at the University of Nebraska, wrote about why Life with Elizabeth was such a groundbreaking show for its time. Betty's role as Elizabeth uh, portrayed an independent and capable woman. And very likely because of this, uh, she didn't become nearly as popular as characters like uh, Lucy and I Love Lucy, who appealed more to the audiences of the time. Uh, Elizabeth was more intelligent than her husband and an equal partner in the marriage. Life with Elizabeth taught women clever ways to handle conflicts in a marriage. And that, a woman appearing clever maybe even smarter than her husband in some ways, controversial back then. Foster wrote in Life with Elizabeth, Elizabeth, when faced with a problem, relies less on playing dumb and more on her ability to think things through analytically. I note that many times the camera just stops on White's face as she thinks. We watch and hear a studio audience laugh, perhaps a bit uncomfortably, 
or perhaps a bit knowingly, as we simply watch a woman use her mind in the 50s. The simple act of watching a woman really think through a situation was a feminist act in the early 50s. How fucking crazy is that? That a lot of people were genuinely like a bit shocked. What? A woman? Thinking. Get out of here. Uh, Lucifina just sighed, rolled her eyes. That was just seven years ago. Uh, Life with Elizabeth also featured the unique element of breaking the fourth wall. Elizabeth winked at the audience, addressed the narrator, which established a closeness with the audience that other shows didn't have. Betty insisted on a three-part structure to the show, featuring seven-minute independent segments. Narrator Jack Nars discussed each incident at the beginning of the segment. And at the end of each segment, the narrator always asked, Elizabeth, aren't you ashamed? (laughs) And Betty always smiled back and shook her head, no as if refusing to back down. Not being ashamed of outsmarting your husband. Edgy. Edgy back then. Gosh dang. Uh, Let's check out a little bit of what 1953 TV looked like, or at least sounds like. Uh, This episode, this is called Wacky Biscuits. Incident number one in the life of Elizabeth occurred when she and Alvin were newlyweds. And Elizabeth as a newlywed, you have to see to believe. So, (laughs) let's go see. Elizabeth? How are you tonight? She's upset. That bad, huh? She's crying. How'd the biscuits turn out? She's really upset. She's not happy with the biscuits. It was the oven. Elizabeth, you shouldn't take them out of the oven. They might fall. Look <laughs> the way he's talking down to her. <laughs> well, they look fluffy anyway. They're, they're huge. Huge, huge. Cartoonishly huge. <laughs> and hard as a rock. Knock them one against the stove. Now the phone's ringing. Old Hello? rotary phone. Oh, Mama. Mama, why didn't you teach me to cook? This is so 1950s. I made some biscuits just now, and they look like the ruins of the Acropolis. <laughs> look like the ruins of the Acropolis. That's great. I wanted to make such a beautiful dinner for Alvin on our first anniversary. Anniversary work. Ha ha ha. Now some guy walks in. I know that. Not her husband. I know all that, Mama, but that doesn't help me, no. Well, why didn't you tell me? She sees the guy, she's scared. Louder, Elizabeth. Who who are you? Well, now I know who you are, Mom. She still has the phone to her ear, right? So Mom is thinking she's talking to her. Who are you? Uh, well, I'm your mom. And now the comedy is back and forth, you know, you, you get it. Uh, Betty received an Emmy nomination for Best Actress for her work on the show, saying later, there is no point trying to be coy about it. Admittedly, it's a first-class ego trip, but having been chosen by one's peers to receive that lovely little statuette is a genuine thrill that never completely goes away. Uh, later that year, Don Federson made arrangements to get life with Elizabeth on film so they could distribute it around the country. Uh, instead of Saturday night live shows, they now moved into a actual studio, and Betty didn't like the move. She especially hated filming scenes over and over to get the different camera angles. Uh, You know, if somebody messed up a line, they would redo it now. Uh, She described it like doing comedy in a mortuary. Betty would have been a killer stand-up comic, right? She she loved to ad-lib. She loved the live audience's energy. Uh, She would have also killed it on shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, Towards the end of 1953, Federson announces he's leaving KLAC to start his own production company, offers to take Bandy Productions with him. Uh, Life with Elizabeth continues, but Betty ends her time on Hot. Soon after leaving Hot, Hollywood on television, uh, Betty got a meeting with NBC for a daytime half-hour show now. 
One of the first questions they asked was, if I thought I could bear up under the strain of doing a half-hour show every day, five days a week. She obviously found this hilarious. It's like they uh, didn't fucking pay attention to the fact that she was working six days a week, five and a half hours a day for years. January of 1954, the Betty White Show premieres on NBC nationwide. The entire country could see the show at the same time. Right before, you know, it was uh, like regional, the way it was distributed. Betty moved into a new NBC facility in Burbank Studio One. The network allowed Betty to hire a female director, Betty Turbeville. Betty on Betty action. Uh, Turbeville, one of the first female directors in the industry. During the show, Betty sang, did celebrity guest interviews. Her band played songs. Uh, She did all the live commercials. I mean, that's fucking crazy too. The way they would do these shows back then, right? She is, uh, you know, has to do all the shows. She's doing this. She's having everything going, interviewing the guests. She's singing songs and doing this like every day, uh, commercial break. She doesn't get to go use the bathroom. Like she's doing the commercials. (laughs) She interacted with the fucking band before she did the commercials. Oh my gosh. Uh, She would always close the, uh, uh, by singing the show's theme song. Here's one of the songs she sang in 1954. uh, Wish You Were Here. Unfortunately, not the Pink Floyd, no version. But still good, and she had a she had a great voice. The second half of the Betty White Show from Hollywood. From Hollywood. This is a song that takes you back to about a year and a half ago, just about exactly. See what kind of memories it brings up. Okay. They're not making the skies as blue. I did not expect that voice out of her. Wish you were here As blue as they used to When you were near Wish you were here And the mornings don't seem as new Brand new as they did with you She had a great voice! Uh, yeah, so she's a great she, she was, uh, she was, When she was doing that show, she was once offered a sizable amount of money uh, to do a Kotex commercial uh, the company wanted to test how accepting the public would be of a feminine product commercial. And Betty told them politely that there was not enough money in the world to get her to do something like that. Man, in the 50s, men and women alike, afraid to talk about tampons in public. Hush! Don't talk about your filthy childhood egg purchase, ladies! No one wants to hear about your uterine lining! Go bleed in private! And then wash up that hoo-ha! So it's ready for some wean action. Uh, crazy how it's a big deal for a lot of people to talk about it, uh, you know, still. Ah, uh, man. If if, I, if my dick bled once a month, I promise you, you'd fucking hear about it. You'd hear about it every month. For a few days, a month, every single month, it'd be hard for me to think about anything else. How am I doing? Well, my dick's bleeding. My dick's dropping blood. So, you know, it could be better. So I'm not as chipper as you would like today, Lindsay. Been a little preoccupied with my bloody dick. Yes, it's that time again. And no, I don't feel like going out tonight. I'm going to wrap my dick up in a dick pad, sit on the couch, and have some ice cream and watch Golden Girls. Uh, Betty was socially bold with her new show. She had a female director and a black tap dancer, Arthur Duncan, as a regular guest. Uh, she would take a lot of heat for that. 1950s, not great for women's rights, uh, less great for black Americans' rights. Uh, she said it came as a uh, frightfully ugly surprise one day when a few of the stations that carried our show through the South notified us that they would, with deep regret, find it most difficult to broadcast the program. They probably they didn't say like that. Oh, with deep regret. We will find it most difficult to broadcast the program unless Mr. Arthur Duncan uh, be removed from the cast. She said, I was shocked. And it goes without saying that Arthur continued to perform on our show as often as possible. To its credit, the network backed us up. 
I was livid. This was 1954, for heaven's sake. I wanted to tell them what to do with their stations, but wiser heads prevailed. God, I wish you would have ripped them a fucking new one. Like some crazy audio recording somehow of Betty White back then just getting like so profane, so vulgar, just heated. Oh, oh, you don't like seeing Arthur tap dance on your TV? You dumb fuck redneck cunts. Oh, well, okay. Next week, he's not tap dancing. Now, next week, he's going to whip his black dick out. He's going to hammer the sweet pink pussy, right? Knock this precious white ass out till I squirt, motherfuckers. Bouncing black balls, jiggling white titties. That's our next show. That's the name of our next show, you dipshits. No one tells Betty White Power who the fuck she can have on her show. You can lick my puss if you don't like it. God, that'd be fucking amazing to see Betty White say something like that. Uh, Betty refused to take Duncan off the show, right? She actually had him on the show more after that. She told her critics, sorry, live with it. Uh, so, you know, so kind of what I said and, you know, less words. And then gave Duncan, you know, again, more airtime. So, hell Nimrod. Uh, the Betty White Show also featured a segment called Wish Day. Orphaned or underprivileged children were invited onto her show, interviewed. They would make a wish. And then I thought this was kind of funny. Instead of granting that wish, Betty would point at them and laugh while Arthur Duncan uh, tap danced like maniacally behind her. And she would scream stuff like, wishes don't come true. Enough for orphans. I bet you wish your parents were still alive. And then she'd have Arthur drag the crying kids uh, out of the camera frame. And sometimes a few minutes later, like just for extra fun, you'd hear gunshots that were never explained. Uh, that's demented crazy talk. No, but she really did have orphans come and they would be interviewed and then they would get their wishes. Uh, Betty also liked to do animal features as often as possible. Around this time, Betty moved in with her parents in Brentwood. She was barely home. Well, wasn't dating. Why waste money on her own place? And she loved mommy and daddy. Horace and Tess. They were pretty fucking great. Uh, Betty would drive 45 minutes to get to the studio by 6 a.m. for her hair and makeup. And mom Tess would get up at 4 a.m. with sweet Betty Boop every morning so they could eat breakfast together. Oh, all the feels. Uh, December of 1954, Betty travels to New York to meet uh, with NBC about her show. And she's informed it was being canceled after a final broadcast, December 31st. So, Merry fucking Christmas. She later said, it was my first trip to New York, and our bleak two days served as anything but an auspicious introduction to the city. Excuse me, I was convinced it was the end of the world for me. I would not only never work again, but any joy in life was over forever. Betty fought tears as she sang her last closing song on December 31st, 1954. But of course, you know, her career. Uh, Far from over. After the Betty White show ended, Betty participated in parades, guest shots, uh, various game shows for the next few years. It's better than nothing, but not what she wanted, she said. After years of tight schedules and hours of the studio, just doing guest shots and game shows didn't seem quite like an honest day's labor. In 1957, Betty produced and starred in another show, Date with the Angels. Date with the Angels offered a comedic look at domestic life, but was different than life with Elizabeth. Betty got the idea from the play Dream Girl, and the short story, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. The premise, very simple. The main character experiences a situation that doesn't go the way she wanted it to, and she replays it again in her mind. The protagonists were a young married couple, Gus and Vicky Angel. Betty hired Jim Nars, again, the announcer, uh, Bill Williams, Western actor, as a husband, writer Fran Van Harvest, Harvestfelt, her old friend, uh, who gave Betty her first job. Uh, Don gave them a one-year deal with the Chrysler Corporation, and the show would air on ABC uh, network primetime. Betty was excited about the three-camera system, which meant they could go back to filming once in front of a live studio audience. Uh, the show premiered on May 10th, 1957, ended January 29th, 1958. So one season, 33 episodes. It was unique because it portrayed female fantasy on television, uh, possibly for the first time, geared towards a female audience. And that, again, edgy, edgy, st- controversial. Male critics, male audiences, and the show's sponsor did not care for it. 
Uh, one critic from New York, the New York Herald Tribune, called Betty aggressively feminine. Oh, man. Check, check out the aggressively feminine plot of the January 8th, 1958 episode of Date with the Angels titled The Train. Uh, the Angels and Clemsons head to San Francisco, hoping to impress a company bigwig base there. The husbands lose their wives' cooperation after behaving like drooling schoolboys around a pair of attractive sisters aboard the train. Two TV wives annoyed at their husbands for gratuitously staring at two attractive women. How aggressively feminine! Boys will be boys, feminists! Let them drool! Uh, the show's sponsor, Chrysler, you know, didn't like the dream sequences. Requested uh, more at-home sequences. <laughs> Stop having fantasies, ladies. Uh, less thinking and dreaming, more cooking and cleaning, and looking hot, but not, but not Harlot hot, right? Uh, let's keep it square. Uh, Day with the Angels slowly became, uh, you know, like every other bland, dull domestic comedy. The cast and crew began to lose their passion. Betty wrote, I think I can honestly say, this is, you know, years later, uh, that this was the only time I have ever wanted to get out of a show. We were plugging along and surviving, barely, but there was no longer any different spin on it. And as a result, the fun was gone. So after one season, you know, it was done. 1958, a TV producer, right, longtime Betty White fan and friend, Don Federson, invites Betty to New York for another meeting. She's asked to appear as a guest panelist on the game show, What's My Line? She was also booked onto The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Betty was a big fan of What's My Line, a panel show where contestants must guess a guest job by asking yes or no questions. The guest was always a famous celebrity. The show had already been on the air for five years previously. Uh, from 1958 to 1962, Betty made numerous appearances on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. They become great friends. She'd end up appearing uh, on The Tonight Show a ridiculous 70 times and sometimes would even host when Jack was out of town. Those two, yeah, formed a close friendship. Betty was invited to come onto the show whenever she could. She'd get 400 bucks per appearance. Uh, the trips to New York were so expensive, she usually broke even, but, you know, she had a great time and it kept her in the public eye. 1958, Betty met her next love interest, Phil Cochran, a.k.a. Phil Elephant Cock Cochran, uh, sometimes just known as the cock, and he would talk her into... Quite the career shakeup. Betty, now 36, starred in her very first adult film with Phil this year, uh, parodying her life with Elizabeth's sitcom. It was called Life Inside Elizabeth. The movie, you can still find it on Pornhub, features Phil and Betty, two other women, uh, a young Clint Eastwood getting into all kinds of shenanigans. Straight porn, uh, man on man, woman on woman, uh, double penetration, ATM. Uh, they really went, they went wild, went for it. Uh, Betty delivered a line that became one of her most quoted ever uh, in her career uh, in this film. She said, Everyone's getting drilled. All holes must be filled. Betty White Power, 1958. <laughs> I'm sick. That made me laugh too hard when I thought of it. No, 1958, Betty did meet her next love interest, Phil Cochran, though. <laughs> I'm an idiot. His brother, Tom, was one of Jack Parr's friends, and Phil was a renowned flying ace from World War II. He's a badass. True war hero who consulted on some war movies featuring aerial combat following his service years. I, don't, I have no idea. I don't know anything about his dick. I don't know if he's called the cock. Uh, Jack Parr invited Phil to come uh, watch The Tonight Show. Same night, Betty was a guest. After the taping, Betty went out to dinner with Phil, Tom, Jack, uh, some other friends. Tom and Phil took Betty out to see musicians after dinner. Ended up, uh, you know, ending the long night with hamburgers at PJ Clark's as the sun was beginning to rise. I love that she had fun. Lived it up. Uh, she later wrote, the, the, That silly matchmaking game and subsequent night in the town was the beginning of a deep and lovely love affair that lasted almost four years. Love that she wasn't worried about getting uh, married to have sex anymore, right? It was almost the 60s, baby. Uh, Betty didn't think uh, much of Dayton Phil initially until she was invited to do summer theater uh, the following summer by John Kenley, who knew her from The Tonight Show. Betty performed uh, in The King and I across the Northeast. Phil lived in Erie, Pennsylvania on a horse farm. 
He came out to see her, uh, you know, twice, and the two reconnected. Got it fucking on. Woo! Uh, I'm guessing. No proof. Uh, Betty continued working in the 60s on game shows and sitcoms like the United States Steel Hour. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds very exciting. To tell the truth, match game, you don't say, and Petticoat Junction. Uh, she maintained her status as a well-known TV personality throughout appearances on these talk shows and variety shows uh, as well. Uh, not just game shows. In total, Betty would end up appearing on more than 50 different game shows. Some of Betty's favorite work was game shows, right? In fact, she would meet her third and final husband, the love of her life, Alan Ludden, on Password. From 1961 to 1975, Betty would be a frequent guest on Password. It was a big hit. According to Betty, Password hit the ground running and almost immediately became the hottest daytime show around. In October of 61, CBS ordered a six show a week to run during primetime. So many fucking shows they would do back then. Password was unique because it paired a celebrity with a non-celebrity contestant and the two worked together as a team to guess the password. Alan Ludden, the host for, you know, 20 years. And here's a clip uh, of Betty on the show along with Jack Parr in 1963. This is the lovely star of Hollywood and television, Alan Ludden's beautiful wife, mm-hmm. Betty White. Thank you. And this is my partner, Robert Ware, from Indianapolis, Indiana. This is the celebrated humorist and television star, Miriam Parr's wonderful husband, Jack Parr. Hello, this is my partner, Anna Zarelli from Staten Island, New York, and we're all here to play Password. Yes, it's Password. Yes, it's Password. And now, here's your host on Password, Alan Ludden. <laughs> well, good evening to you. Nice to have you with us this Monday evening. Jack Parr, it's a pleasure to have you back. I'm very happy to be here, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Betty. Hello, Alan. <laughs> what are your plans for the summer, Betty? Well, I'm going to do some... Su- <laughs> what did you have in mind, Alan? <laughs> I'm going to do some summer theater with uh, my husband, Alan. Uh, where, Betty? <laughs> Alan and I are going to do... Um, Alan Ludden, that is, Uh on Password, are going to do Brigadoon in Patterson, New Jersey, and then we're going to do, I go to St. Louis, we're going to have a big fight, then I go to St. Louis and do King and I, then we make up, and Alan and I are going to get back together again in Janus, Dennis and Skowhegan. Gee, I hope I can see it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to have you here. It's very great to have Betty here. Uh, Your first partner tonight, Betty, What kind of a honeymoon did you have? Uh, (laughs) So, clearly, they just got married there. Uh, I could have watched that full episode. Betty had such charisma. Wow. When I watch her in anything, any age, I just can't help but smile. What a special meat sack she really was. Uh, I was a fan before this episode, but bigger fan now. Uh, Ludden had been the MC of another game show before this, the GE College Bowl. Uh, Sunday nights, according to Betty, that gave him an egghead image, but Password allowed him to show off his dry sense of humor. Ludden was born Alan Packard Ellsworth, October 5th, 1917, in Mineral Point, Wisconsin. He's a TV personality, actor, MC, and game show host, mostly game show host. Uh, graduated from the University of Texas in Austin, 1940. Earned a Master's of Arts in English in 1941. Served in World War II. Received a Bronze Star uh, for, before being discharged as an Army Captain in 1946. And after the war, he would pursue, pursue his passions in the performing arts that led to success in radio, followed by a long career as a game show host. Uh, they met, Alan and Betty, during the third week of filming Password which was the first time, uh, you know, uh, Betty appeared as a celebrity guest on the show. And she immediately noticed how kind Alan was. He treated all his guests well, made an effort to speak to everybody. 
Uh, he was also married then, so no flirting for Betty, you know, previous to the one we just heard. Not long after her appearance, she was off to film a movie. To kick off 1962, she starred in Advise and Consent, playing Senator Bessie Adams, going head-to-head with various sexist senators in Washington. Considered her first serious role. And of course, because she's Betty fucking White, she did great. March of 1962, she gets a call from her agent. Uh, she'd received an offer to do summer theater across New England. Alan Ludden had been booked for the lead role in a new play called Critics' Choice, and they wanted Betty to play opposite him. She happily agreed. In May of that year, Betty received a call from Alan letting her know that Password was coming to L.A. for a week of shows. He invites her to watch a showing of Critics' Choice at a theater in Hollywood. They dinner together with a few other people, watch the play, some friends. And that night, Alan and Betty get to talking, and she learns that his first wife had recently died in October of 1961 from lung cancer. During the first week of filming Password, her condition had worsened. Poor bastard, Alan would uh, head to work straight from the hospital. Alan and his first wife married for 18 years, had three children, ages 14, 13, and 10. And now Alan wanted to do some t- summer theater to get himself, his kids out of the house, uh, get them away from a lot of you know memories that are painful at the moment. That summer, Alan and Betty plays husband and wife, uh, play husband and wife in Critics' Choice. The third act featured a kiss scene, which Betty's war hero boyfriend, Phil the Cock, not too pleased about. Uh, Betty spent the summer living with Alan and his children in a house in Maine. Phil really didn't like that. Uh, formed a close bond with his children. Didn't realize it at first, but she was slowly falling for him. During one of the later showings of Critics' Choice, Betty noticed that Alan held the kiss for longer than usual, and she was unable to deny her feelings for him any longer. She wrote later in her autobiography, I wanted to know how powerful his erect penis could be. I wanted to know if I'd like it, laugh at it, or get down on my knees and worship it. Would it amuse me, excite me, terrify me? Would it barely part my lips or choke me? Would it make me have my mascara run? Or would it just be something kind of cute and silly that you could only put in your mouth when something better wasn't around, like a Tootsie Roll? Of course, she did not, <laughs> she did not say that. But I love to imagine her saying that in her ridiculously adorable Betty White voice. No, what she really said was, being together so much in Maine's beautiful environment, we formed some easy friendships and some running jokes. Instead of hello or good morning, Alan soon began to substate, Jesus Christ, I can't. Alan soon began to substitute, will you marry me? At first, Betty thought it was a joke, but Alan was relentless. Uh, She was devastated to leave Alan and his kids at the end of the summer when the theater program was over. She wrote, the group nonsense, uh, this group nonsense was harmless and not unusual among temporary professional families. Talking about the closing night. Uh, Come closing night, there are always heartfelt goodbyes and hopes that paths will cross again someday, then everyone heads back to real life. As a rule, the good intentions of keeping in touch are rarely realized. This is how it's supposed to work anyway. But our closing night celebration rang a little hollow. We'd all grown genuinely fond of one another. Besides, youngsters can't be expected to understand showbiz rules, that you can form great friendships, then turn around and put them on hold for long periods of time. Betty was still dating Phil at this time. Obviously, uh, not one of Alan's biggest fans. Alan, not a big fan of Phil either. Alan and Phil both aware that Betty has strong feelings for them both. Awkward. And for a time, Betty decides to continue to see both of them, to date both of them, stating without getting heavily involved with either one. Phil uh, then asks her to marry him, but she rejects his proposal. She's not sure what she wants to do, doesn't want to move to the East Coast. She's playing the field. I feel, I feel like young Betty had quite a bit of loose feet in her. I like it. Uh, by, December, by December of 1962, she would write, The tightrope act had about run its course. It was becoming increasingly impossible to pretend we were all just good friends. I loved Phil dearly. That would never change, but I could no longer kid myself. I'd fallen very much in love with Alan Ludden. January of 1963, Betty, who just turned 41, ends her relationship with Phil. She flies to New York to spend two days with Alan. Hello, fuckfest. Uh, she said, in love as I was, nonetheless, marrying and moving east was still not in the equation. Alan, however, had 18 years of a happy marriage behind him, not two divorces. He truly believed in what he was selling and kept the pressure on. 
Alan proposed one night over dinner. Uh, he gave Betty a gold ring with a circle of diamonds. She said no. Alan told her you might as well keep it because one of these days you'll put it on for keeps. And Betty was irritated, told him to forget it. In fact, she said, let me up or forget the whole thing. She wouldn't marry him because she didn't want to move to New York. Alan, who was madly in love with her, took the ring back and then wore it on a chain around his neck every day. Sweet Christ, I can't let Lindsay listen to this episode. This guy was too adorable. She want to know why I'm not wearing something of hers every day around my neck. Uh, Betty finally accepted Alan's proposal Easter Sunday, 1963. Alan sent her a stuffed bunny with ruby, diamond, and sapphire earrings. Fuck this guy. He's making the rest of us look bad. Uh, the bunny came with a note, please say yes. Betty realized she would never, you know, probably be with Alan if she didn't say yes now. It's now or never. Alan calls her that night. Instead of answering with hello, Betty answers with yes. I love her story. He must have been so damn happy. Uh, many years later, Betty would say that her biggest regret in life was pushing Alan away because she wasted a year and a half they could have been together. God, if I ever gain access to a time machine, I'm going to travel back, meet Betty White, just to hug her, tell her I love her, and thank her for existing. What is it about Betty's? My grandma Betty's an amazing woman too. Amazing meat sack, right? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of good Betty's. Can't think of it, uh, or come to think of it, I can't think of, a, of ever meeting a Betty I haven't liked. June 14th, 1963, Betty and Alan finally get married. They have a ceremony in Vegas, followed by a short honeymoon in Laguna Beach, then fly back to New York. Gotta get back to work. As a wedding gift, Jack Parr played Password with them. That was what we just listened to. Uh, he normally refused all game show opportunities, but made an exception for his friends. Betty and Alan never had any children of their own, uh, but she did help raise his three children, David, Martha, and Sarah. It was a great stepmom. Betty told CBS in 2012 that she never had kids herself because I didn't choose to have children because I'm focused on my career. And I just don't think as compulsive as I am that I could manage both. It's a bold choice for a woman born when she was born. And what great self-awareness, right? The more I read about her again, the more I fucking love her. I know this whole episode is a fucking fluff piece, but damn it, she was great. Betty moves to New York for four years until Password gets moved to California. November of 1963, shortly after moving to New York, uh, Betty's horse, Betty's horse, <laughs> she has a horse now, guys. No, Betty's father, Horace, uh, came down with a severe cold and was sent to the hospital. He was scheduled for release the next day. And then Betty's mother, Tess, is also admitted to the hospital because of low blood count. Betty flew overnight to pick up her dad. She took him home and settled him down to watch a football game. And uh, she left to get him some lunch. And when she returned, he had passed away. He was only 64, hadn't appeared that sick. Uh, total shock. Betty's mother, still sick herself, was sadly unable to attend the funeral, but discharged from the hospital the day after. And Betty decided to move her to New York. And Alan would support her throughout the entire ordeal. It was during that suspended weekend that it began to become clear to me what marriage is all about. She said, in incredibly slow study, I came to realize that Alan and I weren't two separate entities. We were together. From that day forward, any problems we had came from the outside. Man, hail Nimrod. Uh, by May of 1967, Password is taping six uh, weeks a year in LA now. More and more shows are moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, then in September, CBS cancels Password. Despite the show being so popular, it became the first game show to play reruns on air. Betty and Alan are devastated because the show had maintained record high ratings for many years. Uh, they weren't sure what their next steps were going to be. August of 68, Betty, Alan, and his kids moved to Brentwood, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, we've been to this neighborhood before, right? Back in the OJ suck. Luckily, in this episode, no one's getting murdered. Uh, in 1970, Betty gets a new opportunity to host her own show in LA, The Pet Set. Alan and her conceptualized it, sold it to the Carnation Company. Betty would invite celebrities to bring their pets on for interviews. Uh, uh, she also had a, a wild spot segment, which featured exotic animals. The biggest animal she ever had on the show was an Asian elephant. It was hard work to arrange all the interviews, but Betty loved it, saying, I feel like a kid in a candy store. 
because writing the show around each celebrity's specific interests gave me great latitude to use anything and everything that was available. Betty did 39 episodes before funding got pulled. Her show featured tigers, lions, bears, wolves, a water buffalo, zebra, ostrich, and that elephant. 1971, ABC picked up Password for uh, All or sorry, picked up pa- a version called Password All Stars, a celebrities only password reboot. Then in 1975, they redid the show with regular contestants. And in 1979, NBC launched Password Plus. And Alan hosted all of it. Uh, He hosted the show until October 1980. So, right, they're back on track. But then cancer forces him to step down. More on that tragic illness in just a bit. From 1973 to 1977, Betty White guest starred in the famous Mary Tyler Moore show, playing the now iconic character Sue Ann Nivens. Uh, With this role, she showed America she was more than a pretty smile. She had wit. She could play a strong character. Sue Ann Nivens was the co-worker of Mary Tyler Moore in a TV newsroom in Minneapolis. She was the host of the Happy Homemaker segment of the show. It was a very different role for Betty. Sue Ann was sassy, snarky, sex positive. She hadn't played anything, you know, uh, of that kind of uh, sexuality of a sexual nature since she'd shot that porno with Clint Eastwood and Phil Elephant Cock Cochran, Life Inside Elizabeth. JK, of course. Uh, the casting director trying to find the actress to play Sue Ann Nivens described the character as a Betty White type but didn't want to actually hire Betty because she and Mary Tyler Moore were good friends. They didn't want to damage a friendship if Betty auditioned and then didn't get the role. So they went through 12 actresses, but none of them were sickening enough, sickeningly sweet. They had to call in Betty White to play a Betty White type character. Reminds me of a random audition I had years ago in LA. I uh, don't even remember what the sitcom uh, you know, was, what was, what I was auditioning for. I was auditioning for a role where they were looking for a Brian Callen type. And right before I went in the room with the producers to audition, Brian fucking Callen walked out. So I had to follow Brian Callen auditioning for a role that called for being as Brian Callen as possible. No surprise. I didn't get it. I knew I wasn't going to get it when I walked into the room. I'm pretty sure Brian Callen got it. Makes sense that he would play himself better than I could. Uh, Betty was only supposed to do one episode when she landed her role, but the audience loved her so much. They kept her on. Right after her first performance, she was informed that the writers were going to work on another Sue Ann script immediately. Betty loved playing the character of Sue Ann, and she enjoyed the live audience aspect of the show. Uh, here's a little Sue Ann uh, scene from the from the Mary Tyler Moore show featuring Sue Ann heavily flirting with station manager or station producer Lou, uh, played by the wonderful Ed Asner. <laughs> sequences. Oh, come on, Mr. Grant, don't ask me to shop for you. Please, Mary, just get Sue Ann anything that you think she might like. Here, here's $20. Oh, Lou, you're so thoughtful. Just touching it properly. <laughs> oh, look, Lou, just because it's my birthday, you don't have to go to all the trouble of going out and buying me a present. I'll do it for you. <laughs> will $20 be enough? Oh, $20 would be fine. Oh, I bet you say that to all the guys. <laughs> what have we hey, now, here? Now there, later, she's already bought the present, wrapped it for herself from, from him. Lou. In the next company at somebody's house. Sitting on his lap, he's very uncomfortable. To the most voluptuous, exciting, desirable creature on God's earth. <laughs> With admiration and lust. <laughs> In front of friends, oh, she pulls out some skimpy lingerie. Oh, you should. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, uh, wear it in good health. She was so fucking funny. Uh, incredible comedic timing. 
<laughs> like, again, I can't not smile and watch it. One of the best sitcom actors ever. Uh, in the running for the best, in my opinion. Consistently killed it, scene after scene, role after role for decades. Uh, Betty won two Emmys for her work on that show. 1975 and 1976, she won outstanding continuing performance by a supporting actress in a comedy series. The show wrapped up as one of the most critically acclaimed and popular sitcoms of all time in 1977. Still is. The Mary Tyler Moore Show won 29 Emmys, won them, not just nominated, won 29 Emmys. In 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked it number six on its list of the of 101 best written TV series of all time. Number one uh, was The Sopranos. Number 69 on that same list was Betty's other major hit show, The Golden Girls. Uh, far too low of a ranking, I think. Uh, I love The X-Files, but it ranked in at number 26. And to me, the writing, not nearly as tight or consistent as Golden Girls. But, you know, I'm not a TV critic. Uh, from 1977 to 1978, Betty White hosted her own show again. The Betty White Show is reborn. Uh, then in May 1980, her husband, Alan, goes in for a gallium scan, a test to look for inflammation, infection, or cancer in the body. And you know what's going to happen. Uh, the results identify a hot spot. Alan is quickly scheduled for surgery. The doctor who operated on him informed Betty that Alan had stomach cancer. They removed as much as they could, but they couldn't get it all. And Alan is told he has just months left to live. So Fuck. Betty and Allen do not wallow in self-pity. Those two beautiful souls decided to move on and make the most of every day for whatever time we had, she wrote. Allen decided he would work for as long as he could, not stepping down from Password until October of 1980, five months later. Uh, and then Allen Ludden passed away from cancer June 9th, 1981. He'd lived for just over a year after his initial surgery. Uh, Allen spent two uh, nights with Betty at their house in Carmel, California, largely in each other's arms before he passed away. At least he died surrounded in love, I guess. Uh, he died just five days from their 18th wedding anniversary. He was buried in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, where he was born, uh, where Betty and the kids had a funeral for him. Betty then had an area of the L.A. Zoo renamed the Ludden Plaza in her husband's honor. Both have been big uh, conservationists and animal rights supporters. Betty wrote, the quality time that Alan and I had together, even after we became aware of what was in store, is something for which I will be eternally grateful. There's that optimism. The mama gave her. Definitely never cried when working on this part of the show. Didn't have uh, blow my nose or anything. Uh, Betty later, later told Larry King she would never marry again because once you've had the best, who needs the rest? My God, what a special uh, relationship they had. Uh, after taking a year or so to grieve, Betty got back at it, uh, back into acting after a, uh, a brief, very interesting period of riding with a local Hells Angels motorcycle club chapter. She wanted to shake things up, hit the road, not think about her former life, right? Get out in the open air, hit the highway. Normally, women, of course, as we learned in that episode, not allowed in the Hells Angels. Actually, no woman has ever been patched in or even prospected other than Betty fucking White. Uh, years later, she will be buried in her chapter vest. She stopped being an active member in the organization after nearly killing several men in an altercation between her chapter and some members of the Cleveland Steamers Motorcycle Club at a rally uh, in Indiana. Uh, you know, I'll let the longtime president of the Cleveland Steamers uh, just tell us what happened. Hey, everybody. I'm, uh... I'm Tooch Martinez, founder, godfather, original charter president for the Cleveland Steamers Motorcycle Club. And I want to tell you about the time I got into a little scuffle with Betty White. When I met her, uh, she was going by the earlier stage name, uh, Betty White Power again. And she was in a real dark place. In my club and her Hell's Angel chapter, some Mongols, Banditos, uh, Sons of Silence, and some more real tough riders, you know? We're all in Indianapolis for a Phil Collins concert. Right before he recorded No Jacket Required. That's a great album. Uh, that concert was the first time I heard uh, Susudio. <laughs> su, su, studio. Oh, oh, oh. Anywho, me and the guys were out in the parking lot after the show, knocking back some uh, black cherry flavored uh, Seagram's wine coolers. 
uh, some kind they don't make anymore when up rolls Betty. And I'm like, whoa, Sue Ann Nivens from Mary Tyler Moore? And she says to me, and I'll never forget this, she says, nah, fool, Betty White Power from Life Inside Elizabeth. Everyone's getting drilled. All holes must be filled. And then she took out a pair of nunchucks, knocked out three of my best guys, you know, cold. She walked over to me without breaking stride. She grabbed me by the throat, licked the side of my face all slow and creepy-like, and then she said, get scooting, toots. And before turning and walking back to her bike, she gave me like a weird little like flick in the balls. Not sure if she was flirting or if it was like a warning or some kind. And, and I'm not ashamed to say, I did as I was told. Oh, toots scooted. And I never saw her again. Uh, sorry, uh, that was, uh, I, I don't know what the fuck that was. <laughs> I just missed Toots, you know, I want to hear from him. What I meant to say earlier, of course she wasn't the fucking Hells Angels, was after taking a year or so off work to grieve Alan's death, Betty got back at it, acting. Uh, from 1983 to 1984, Betty starred in Mama's Family, a spinoff of The Carol Burnett Show, which she'd appeared on several times between 1967 and, 1970, uh, and 1978. Uh, we didn't even mention that. It, it would be tiresome to list out all of her performances. Her IMDb page, that internet movie database, lists almost 500 performance credits. It's fucking unreal. Uh, excuse me, Betty was glad to get back to work because as she said, you spend your work hours pretending to be someone else, which literally forces you out of yourself. The plot of Mama's family re- revolved around a mother's death and her children's family dynamics afterwards. Uh, Betty played the role of Mean Ellen. The audience loved it so much, Betty signed on for seven of the 13 episodes. Uh, Betty did not love uh, love her time on the show though because privately she said the timing was just a little too close to my own situation for comfort. Uh, 1983, Betty hosts the game show Just Men, and she became the first woman to ever win an Emmy for hosting a game show. Uh, Betty got the job after receiving a call from Rick Rosner, producer of Hollywood Squares. Uh, he wanted a female MC for his new show. Betty had been offered host positions in the past, but the opportunities always fell through because networks didn't think audiences were ready yet still for a female host. So Betty was skeptical, but went to the meeting anyway, intrigued by the show idea. The show's format was seven celebrity men each episode, writing down their answers to personality-based questions. Then two female contestants try to predict these answers. Each girl chooses one of the men and has 60 seconds to ask yes or no questions. Based on what she learned, she tries to guess the response to the original question. If correct, she gets a set of keys. Whichever girl has the most car keys by the end of the episode gets to sleep with all the celebrities. Uh, It was like a swinger thing. No, uh, they got to pick a car and try to start it. And if the car started, she got to keep it. And if the car didn't start, Betty White uh, would put a gun to her head and execute her. Or she would be invited back to try again on the next show. I would play a clip, but it doesn't uh, translate very well when it's just audio. Uh, NBC finally approved of a female host for the show. Betty loved doing the show because she enjoyed the game and she was able to walk around, you know, on the show, interact with contestants. The show only lasted 13 weeks, though. Grant Tinker, NBC executive, hated the show because he didn't like how much she moved around. That's how some of these execs think. I'm amazed how some of these executives get into their positions of power. Uh, And so the show was canceled. I I don't like the way she moves around. Too much moving. But people love it, sir. I don't care. I don't. The moving. Cancel it. Uh, critics praised White as a host, but, you know, it's over. Uh, 1984, CBS uh, fucks up and announces uh, that the situation comedy is dead. No more sitcoms, everybody. NBC is like, what are you talking about? And they produce The Cosby Show, which is a massive hit because no one knew that Dr. Huxtable was a disgusting serial rapist yet. Uh, the Cosby Show revives uh, the then-struggling network and their ratings skyrocket. That same year, Betty receives a letter from the production company, Wit Thomas Harris, about yet another new show. She said, ultimately, a script did arrive, and now I really started to sit up and pay attention. So many scripts come in, and you read them all, each time hoping for the best. The majority are less than good, some bad enough so that mediocre is a compliment. 
Now and then it's a, a, now and then it's a delight to find one that shows promise. But this script, entitled The Golden Girls, knocked my socks off. On uh, the 1980s and uh, uh, early 90s, and yeah, 19, what, what the fuck am I talking about? Ladies, early 90s. Uh, Betty starred in The Golden Girls, which many consider her biggest achievement. She played Rose Nyland, a sweet and naive Norwegian-American woman, hangy bangy, hoofda, uh, from St. Olaf, Minnesota, which is a real place. Uh, they had a fictionalized version of it in the version of it in the show, but it's a real place. Little town of less than 400 people. And uh, she worked with Rue McClanahan, B. Arthur, and Estelle Getty. The show starred full four older women and only four older women as it stars. Completely fucking unheard of at that time. And it killed, of course. The success of the Golden Girls proved that there was an audience willing to watch older women on national TV. This is monumental. Uh, you know, for the time Golden Girls ran for seven seasons, won numerous awards. Betty won another Emmy for her work on the show in 1986. Outstanding lead actress in a comedy series. For its first five seasons, over 30 million people tuned in. Lindsay and I, Monroe, have watched the show, loved it. Uh, I watched it growing up, loved it then. Uh, but it was actually supposed to play the hypersexual Blanche, but the casting director recommended she audition for Rose instead. She would have killed that other role too. Uh, Betty was initially disappointed in auditioning for Rose, saying, I was heartsick. From the script we had read, we knew the strong character of Dorothy and her brutally frank mother, Sophia. We understood the lustful Blanche, but I hadn't a clue who Rose was. But then Betty received some good advice about Rose from one of the writers saying she is not dumb, just totally naive. She believes everything she is told and in her innocence always takes the first meaning of every word. Now she had Rose's number and of course she nails it. And here's a quick scene. I love the show so much. In this scene, a young girl won't give Rose her teddy bear back, Fernando. That had immense sentimental value. Uh, Blanche had accidentally sold it in a garage sale. And then the young girl attempted to uh, extort uh, Rose to bribe her for gifts or a bunch of money. And well, here you go. Get the door, Rose. You. Good morning. Well, kid, what do you want? I changed my mind. I was wrong to ask for all those gifts. Dorothy, you see, I knew she'd come to her senses. I decided cash is better. <laughs> that way I can buy exactly what I want. I'll get my purse. No. Blanche, I'm not going to let you do that. Here she goes. I've been doing a lot of thinking. and If after all the years of love and companionship, Fernando and I are meant to part company, I'll just have to accept that. Time to time, life deals you an unfriendly hand. There's nothing you can do about it. I guess there's a lesson to be learned here. She... <laughs> Sometimes life just isn't fair, kiddo. Pushes the girl out the door. <laughs> she pushes the girl out the door there at the end uh, and just rips her teddy bear back. And what is so funny about it is that was not in the script. Uh, in the script, it was supposed to end with the with the girl giving Rose back the bear. And you can almost kind of see this child actress being like, what are you doing? Like as uh, yeah, <laughs> Betty, you know, twists her around, like she's, you know, just coming in the front door and starts leading her towards the door again and then grabs the bear real quick and then just gives her a hard shove. Uh, looks like she's about to fall down and then slams the door. Fucking improv. So good. All those hours doing live TV, you know, over 30 hours a week. I had to improv so much. She had fucking chops. Uh, April of 1985, they filmed the Golden Girl pilot live for NBC execs. They love it. So do advertisers. Uh, Betty quickly receives a call that they're going to film the rest of the shows and the Golden Girls premiere in September of 85. They beat the Cosby show during their first week, stay in the top 10 of all sitcoms for five years after that. Betty writes, what came as a big surprise to all concerned was the way Golden Girls cut across all the demographic lines. Over half of our mail came from kids, but the 20, 30, and 40 something and beyond were well represented. 
How was our show able to reach all the age groups? Perhaps because we weren't specifically aiming at any one of them, but mainly I think because we were truly funny. Exactly. Funny is funny. Doesn't matter how old you are, what uh, you know, what you uh, look like. Some comics put out great specials in their 70s, some in their 20s, even in their teens, some attractive, some not attractive, right? Funny really is funny. Uh, Betty won another Emmy in 1986. By the end of the season, three, uh, uh, by, by the end of season three, excuse me, all the actresses, producers, writers, and the director of Golden Girls had Emmys. Uh, by season six, the show was moved from the 9 p.m. to the 8 p.m. slot, which made the show's uh, ratings drop, actually. They fell from sixth place to 10th. Next year, they did fall to 30th. Uh, by season seven, everyone knew it was going to be the last. B. Arthur wanted to move on. The ratings are dropping. No one wants to do the show without B. Arthur. Uh, before it wraps, a spinoff show is announced. Dorothy would get married and move away. The drama would unfold in a one-hour special that would end the series. And then the spinoff series, The Golden Palace, would begin. Don fucking Cheadle. <laughs> was in the Golden Palace, by the way. So random. Uh, Blanche, Sophia, and Rose would sell the house and buy a small hotel in Miami. In 1992, the Golden Girls uh, finally comes to an end. Betty appears in the one and only season of the Golden Palace. 24 episodes taped in 92 and 93. She said of the spinoff, The show was enjoyable, the reviewers were kind, and the ratings were satisfactory. In other words, Golden Palace was a moderately pleasing show, not a grabber. Betty was disappointed, but not devastated when they didn't pick up for a second season. Uh, I think what I missed more than the actual show itself was the structure it afforded, she said. In September of 1993, Betty and some other actresses invited by the Chicago Museum of Broadcasting to, to participate in a seminar on women in broadcasting. And the host asked Betty questions about being a woman in the early days of TV. And the tone was that women were not represented, that they had no voice of their own in the early days of TV. And that, uh, well, pissed uh, Betty off. She pointed out how many shows in the 50s were about the lives of women, starring women, and some featuring working women. One magazine writer, though, asked her and the other panelists, did it ever occur to you what harm you women were doing, portraying these female stereotypes? Uh, then addressing Betty specifically, she said, in your case, allowing this authoritative voice to dismiss you, I shall leave you, Elizabeth. And uh, <laughs> Betty said, God damn, I love her. Oh, come on. Let's not lose our sense of humor altogether. Alvin would walk out simply because he didn't have an answer and was trying to salvage his dignity. And when Elizabeth shook her head at the aren't you ashamed, she made it abundantly clear that she couldn't wait to do it again and next uh, the next time. I'll grant you there have been inequities, but let's not paint everything then and now with the same brush. So glad she said that. Art and entertainment, right? They don't have to always be about breaking new ground or be subversive to have value. You know, we get emails, uh, you know, from time to time about, uh, that I don't read on the show about like, why didn't I speak about this movement or this crisis or weighing on this uh, or that cultural hot topic? Well, sometimes I don't weigh in because that week I don't feel like dealing with a uh, backlash. Sometimes I don't feel educated enough on the issue to speak to it. And sometimes I just don't fucking want to, right? It's not my job. My job is primarily to entertain and Betty got that, right? Some people look down on that point of view. You know, you have a platform, you got to use it all the time. No, you don't actually. Uh, Betty's primary goal was never social justice. Her primary goal was to be good at her job and she was. And for fans like me, that is enough, more than enough. Uh, and then some selfish, you know, self-righteous interviewer uh, dares to say to her, did it ever occur to you that you were harming women? It's like, fuck off. Not everyone has to be a social justice warrior 24-7. And if she had pushed too hard early on, I wouldn't be even talking about her now because she would have never had a career. Sometimes you have to wait to take a shot like she did when she championed race equality later with tap dancer Arthur Duncan in 1954, right? Because now she had some clout. Now it made sense. Later, when she also had clout, uh, she spoke out in support of LGBT rights, right? Saying if uh, a couple has been together all the time um, or all that time and there are gay relationships that are more solid than some heterosexual ones, 
I think it's fine if they want to get married. I don't know how people can get so anti-something. Mind your own business. Take care of your affairs and don't worry about other people so much. So, right? Hail Nimrod. Hail Betty Wright. She did speak out, but she, uh, she picked her battles. Uh, Betty later shared more thoughts about the feminist views of the modern age, saying, after hearing so many questions regarding contending with men over the foregoing two days, I had to say that in our day, the battle of the sexes was a tongue-in-cheek name for a game show, not the all-out war it has become. For four separate series of shows, I had worked not only as a performer, but as a producing partner with two strong men, and I was treated, and if I was treated, as a second-class citizen, I admit I was too dumb to know it. Without treading on any feminist toes, I tried to indicate that that was another time and place, and it is specious to overlay today's values on where the world was over 40 years ago. I couldn't help wondering out loud how our contemporary television shows and lifestyles and attitudes would be perceived by some future group of young women. Uh, Well said, right? Quiet kids, uh, the fucking grown-ups talking. Uh, Specious, by the way, means superficially plausible, but actually wrong. I didn't know what that word meant. Important to understand it to get that quote there. Because uh, what Betty is saying there is, uh, you know, uh, back in 1993, she's talking about something that seems to be discussed much more today than it was back then, that concept of presentism. Presentism is illogical and frankly, just fucking stupid, right? To uh, judge the morality and standards and cultural norms of the past by the morality and standards and cultural norms of the present. Love that she seems as annoyed uh, by people doing that as I get, right? To judge how women pursued roles and careers on TV in the 50s by the standards of the 90s. It's just nonsensical. Uh, I first discussed this concept in this show in the Andrew Jackson episode, right? If he behaved the way he did in the early 19th century today, would he be a fucking monster? Yeah. Well, was he a monster by the standards of his time, the early 1800s? No, he wasn't. And some people just can't seem to wrap their heads around logical stuff like that. Uh, the years following the Golden Girls wrapped up were considered a period of decline for Betty by many, but that's simply uh, not true. She continued regularly working in guest star roles, even playing herself in several uh, roles. For example, she played herself in the John Larroquette show in 96, won an Emmy that year for her work. 99, she appeared in the successful B-horror movie Lake Placid at the age of 77. Unique role for her. Uh, And she accomplished it at an older age. She has one of the best horror movie, like B-horror movie lines ever in this film. Uh, Her character has just fed a gigantic monster crocodile a blindfolded cow after leading it to the water's edge. And, well, wait for her final words in this scene where local cops are confronting her about lying to them earlier regarding her knowing about the beast uh, that her husband used to feed uh, before he passed away. I haven't broken any laws. Oh, but you have, ma'am. You lied to us. That could be obstruction of justice. A man has been killed in part because he's silence. I could make out a charge of reckless endangerment. And I'm sure Peter would be annoyed at how you treat your cows. The reason I lied, if I told you the truth, you'd hunt it down and kill it. Which seems to be exactly what you're trying to do. How long have you been feeding this thing? Six years. Six years? Well, Bernie was out fishing and it followed him home. So we threw it some scraps. Well, he didn't seem to bother anybody. He became kind of like a, a pet who lives in the wild. He just appeared. You have no idea how he arrived here. No, do you? Well, your husband burned. You didn't by any chance lead him to the lake blindfolded. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. <laughs> oh, I love that. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. That's such a good line. Delivered so well. Uh, Betty also worked on David E. Kelly's Boston Legal as a female killer. Uh, she appeared in 16 episodes. And she even worked on soap operas like The Bold and the Beautiful uh, from 2006 to 2009. She definitely kept working after the Golden Girls. There was no big break. Uh, she also appeared on that 70s show in 2002 and 2003 playing Kitty Foreman's mom. 
Uh, but he was now in her early 80s, still able to memorize over 40 pages of dialogue in short time. Uh, besides her work on screen, Betty was involved in several notable organizations. She worked with the LA Zoo, Morris Animal Foundation for over 40 years. Uh, in 2006, the zoo named her ambassador to the animals. She donated countless amounts of money to the American Humane Association and Fund for Animals. Betty said in an interview, I'm actually the luckiest old broad alive. Half my life is working in a profession I love, and the other half is working with animals. Uh, Betty said towards the end of her long life that she had to keep working to support her animal causes. Uh, she also wrote books during the 80s and 90s. In 87, she wrote Betty White in Person, a book of reflections on lessons learned over a long and successful life. Uh, 95, she wrote the autobiography, Here We Go Again, one of the main sources for this episode, uh, the source of a lot of her quotes. Uh, she also wrote two more books later in her career. In 2009, at the age of 87, Betty starred in The Proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. Numerous critics said she stole the show as Ryan's uh, grandma or his character's grandma. And that role introduced Betty to a new generation of comedy fans. And then the uh, next year, 2010, she starred in a hugely popular Snickers uh, commercial that aired during the Super Bowl for the first time. So fucking funny. Bunch of guys playing tackle football in the mud. Uh, one of them is Betty White in sweatpants, right? Running a cross route, <laughs> running right over the middle. Uh, she gets fucking clobbered. Uh, then back in the huddle, here's what she says. Uh, Mike, what is your deal, oh, man? Oh, come on, man. You've been riding me all day. Mike, you're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Oh. Baby. Oh, 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 Snickers. All right, then, of course, you know, it turns into a regular guy. Uh, after that video uh, for that commercial went viral, uh, <laughs> there was uh, rumors about a sex tape of Betty White uh, with the love of her life, Alan Ludden. Not kidding. This is uh, not the life inside Elizabeth shit. She was annoyed by the rumors, which had persisted for years, apparently. Her agent finally released a statement saying, this has come up over the years. People claiming they have photos of Betty and Alan. Simply not true. And Betty is laughing. She can't believe people are still talking about this. Uh, if you look online, it does appear that she posed nude in several pics back when she was 21. Uh, and they are good deep fakes, if they're fake, uh, which reputable sites say they are. I don't know. Maybe, maybe she did post nude for some pictures and uh, I was embarrassed. I don't know. Maybe uh, these pictures, if they're real, you know, tamed by today's standards, but racy back then. And if it's her, ho-ho, hot damn, Betty. Oh, hey, Lucifina. Uh, now for another big career moment, 2010, huge year for Betty. She stars in Hot in Cleveland, a show st starring Valerie Bertinelli, Jane Leaves, and Wendy Mal Malik. Uh, began that year, would last through 2015, and she would appear in 124 out of the total of 125 episodes. She was 93 by the time it wrapped. Uh, she was only supposed to do the pilot, but she loved it so much she wanted to stay, and they let her stay because she's Betty fucking White. Uh, she played Elka caretaker of a home rented by three women she'd been nominated for another emmy in 2011 win a screen actors guild award in 2013 at the age of 91 for outstanding performance by a female actor in a comedy series backing up a bit to may of 2010 betty's invited to host saturday night live making her the oldest host ever at age 88 a man from austin texas who saw that snickers uh, super bowl ad started a facebook campaign to get betty on the show and it worked she was so good in it uh, you can find clips online she rehearsed all week for SNL, experienced terrible stage fright, told her agent she had never ha uh, done anything as intense or would never do anything as intense as SNL again. I love that. She said in a 2018 documentary, uh, Betty White, first lady of television, stage fright is uncomfortable and all that, but it's a lifesaver because the panic that sets in, you've got to counter. You've got to get a handle on that in order to do what you're doing. So the stage fright is what puts the edge, I think, on a performance. And then Betty later said, that was the scariest thing I've ever done. It was really funny stuff, but it was a challenge. Man, I guess it just never goes away. I still get uh, stage fright often. Uh, flares up right before I go on stage. The two minutes before, I feel fine. Up until two minutes before I go on stage. And then oftentimes I get super, super nervous and just think I'm going to forget how to do stand-up. Uh, 
Thank God, actually. Because when I don't, on the rare times I don't worry about the show and I think, oh, I've got this. And I don't go through my normal, like, you know, uh, frenetic, you know, hectic, nervous kind of pre-show prep. That's when the show is flat and not as good. Uh, Betty won an Emmy for her SNL performance, Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series. In 2011, she won a Grammy, Best Spoken Word Album for a reading of her book, If You Ask Me, and of course you won't. She beat out Tina Fey's uh, reading of her book, Bossy Pants. That year, she appeared in the uh, movie The Lost Valentine as Caroline Thomas, a widow whose husband's remains are located and shipped for burial. She starred alongside Jennifer Love Hewitt, considered by some to be her best dramatic performance. I watched a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's a tearjerker. At age 89, so inspiring. Still not done. From 2012 to 2017, when not filming hot in Cleveland, for the few, first few years, Betty hosted Betty White's Off Their Rockers, a hidden camera show where elderly people play pranks on younger counterparts. Received another fucking Emmy nomination. And it is great. Way darker than I expected. Uh, just audio from the show doesn't do it justice. So I, I won't play any, but I was like, oh, okay. Uh, its first two seasons were on NBC, the network she had started working for back in 1954. Also in 2012, Betty celebrated her 90th birthday with a TV special. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Carl, Carl Reiner, Tina Fey, Ed Asner, many others honor her. February of 2013, Betty's Q score, her likability quotient, it's a scale measuring the popularity of a person or thing, typically based on dividing an assessment of familiarity by an assessment of favorable opinion. And it was the highest of anyone in America, literally the most well-liked celebrity in America. She attributed her popularity to being on, in people's homes on TV for over 70 years. She just, you know, believed TV has a different feeling than the big screen because of the intimate home setting. In August 2018, PBS airs Betty White, first lady of television, to celebrate her 80-year career. Uh, one of Betty's last in-person appearances is during the 2018 Emmy Awards telecast. In 2019, Betty, still working at 97, joins the cast of Toy Story 4 to voice a tiger named Bitey White. Uh, and then on December 31st, 2021, Betty White passes away in her home in Brentwood, California, 99 years old, just over two weeks away from celebrating her hundredth birthday. The New York times wrote Betty White, who created two of the most memorable characters in sitcom history, the nymphomaniacal Sue, Sue Ann Niven or Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore show and the sweet, but dim Rose Nyland on the golden girls and who capped her long career with the comeback that included a triumphant appearance as the host of Saturday night live at the age of 88 Died on Friday at her home in Los Angeles. She was 99. Jeff uh, Witches, Betty's friend and agent, confirmed her death to news outlets. Uh, many noted that Betty was the last of the Golden Girls to pass away. She'd outlived the rest by a decade or more. Estelle Getty passed in 2008. B. Arthur in 2009. Rue McClanahan, 2010. Betty had suffered a stroke on December 25th. Her death certificate uh, lists her cause of death as a cerebrovascular accident. Her remains cremated on January 7th, 2022 given to Glenn Kaplan, the man in charge of her advanced healthcare directive at the time of her death. Not clear whether Glenn was just a medical professional to Betty or a friend. Uh, her death certificate lists her legal name as Betty Marion Ludden, right? Mrs. Allen Ludden, that love of her life. Uh, not clear at this time what has been done with her ashes. And on January 17th, 2022, Betty White, a celebration premiered in select theaters across the country. Uh, she's supposed to be there to celebrate her 100th birthday, but the movie was edited as a memorial piece instead. Now let's hop on out of that long, uh, very fun, I hope, timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So Betty White, huh? Damn, she lived a lot of life. What an amazing, touching, inspiring story. 
she was born on January 17th, 1922 in Oak Park, Illinois. Then her family moved to LA where she was a tod- when she was a toddler. During Betty's childhood, inventors working hard on their early television patents. By 1939, Betty's high school graduation year, modern TV in its earliest stages. Betty, by that point, knew she wanted to be a performer. She'd participated in theater in high school, even wrote a graduation play. And then Betty's performance in her high school graduation ceremony got her an invitation to participate in a broadcast at the old Packard building in downtown LA. Her first performance on television. From that moment on, Betty knew what you know she was meant to be a performer. After volunteering in World War II and leaving her first husband, Betty truly started to focus on her career as an actress. She worked with the theater program, performing various plays, which got the attention of her second husband, Agent Lane Allen. A determined young Betty went out uh, every day to speak to casting directors then. One day, she finally got an opportunity, a one-word line in a parquet commercial. Only up from there for Betty. She started earning more and more roles in radio shows. Her work on Grab Your Phone, her first game show, got the attention of disc jockey Al Jarvis. Jarvis needed someone for his new show, Hollywood, on television. Betty went on to work for five days a week for five and a half hours at a time with Jarvis. That opportunity launched her career, taught Betty everything she knew about TV. Hollywood on television, so successful, they added an extra half hour, an extra day on air, a week. Betty became a national TV personality, so successful, she got her own show, The Betty White Show. Her career success would lead to the end of her second marriage. Lane Allen, not interested in marrying a career woman, and Betty wouldn't give up her career for anyone. They loved each other, but wanted different things in life. 1952, Betty founded her own production studio, Bandy Productions, with Don Federson and George Tibbles. Produced a show, Life with Elizabeth, starring herself and Del Moore, Betty was one of the first female producers in the nation. Her show was important because it featured an intelligent, independent woman working to solve problems in a marriage. The show further launched Betty to stardom. After Life with, Life with Elizabeth was Date with the Angels, a show that featured a female fantasy, uh, or female fantasies every episode. Betty's sponsors hated the show, called it aggressively feminine. Uh, it was not. They were just aggressively chauvinistic back then. After this, Betty joined The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Uh, she appeared on the show over 70 times and became a famous guest. In the 60s, Betty primarily focused on game shows, with Password being her most well-known. Uh, it was on Password that she met Alan Ludden, her third husband, and the love of her life. They married in 1963 and uh, spent years working on Password together until his death in 1981. In the 70s, Betty worked on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, now considered a classic. Her character, Sue Ann Nivens, showed a different side to Betty that was witty and sex-positive. In the 80s, Betty played one of the most famous roles in the history of her career, Rose Nyland on The Golden Girls. Golden Girls ran for seven seasons. That show broke generational borders, proved that older women could be just as successful as anyone else in the TV industry. After Golden Girls, many believed her career went into a period of decline. Not true. She continued working on TV shows and movies, continued her work for animal charities. 2010, an especially successful career year for Betty. When she was 88, after doing a Snickers commercial, she was invited to host Saturday Night Live. She set another record, oldest host in the show's history. Then she went on to star in the show Hot in Cleveland and Betty White's Off Their Rockers. She continued working until the very end with plans for a televised 100th birthday celebration in January of 2022. But she didn't quite make it. Maybe the only job she didn't show up for. She passed away December 31st, 2021 at her home in Brentwood. She lived a life that most people can only dream of, characterized by hard work, determination, and perseverance. And I'm so glad our Patreon Space Lizards voted it in to be a weekly show. Uh, it was a joy to work on the research this week. Let's revisit a few more Betty White facts, learn one more new fact in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Betty White technically first appeared on TV in 1939 as part of an experimental broadcast of The Merry Widow. 
The broadcast only transmitted through six floors, but this opportunity helped Betty determine that she wanted to work in television. Number two, Betty's first big opportunity came a decade later, 1949, uh, when she was working as the co-host of the show Hollywood on Television, hosted by Al Jarvis. At one point, Betty worked six days a week, five and a half hours straight. Loved every minute of it. The opportunity put uh, her in a few million people's homes, hour after hour, day after day, for several years. She she became a part of people's families, and this helped her become a major TV personality and later helped her sustain an incredibly long career. Number three, Betty White founded her own production company in 1952, Bandy Productions. Produced her first show in 1953, Life with Elizabeth. Betty's role as business owner, producer, and leading actress was revolutionary for women at the time and proved that they could be just as successful as men. Her show was a hit, further broadened her horizons. Horizons, excuse me. Number four, Betty met her third husband and the love of her life, Alan Ludden, on a game show. Ludden worked as the host of Password for over 20 years. He and Betty were married for almost 18. And number five, new info, Vicki Lawrence, Betty's co-star on The Carol Burnett Show and a lifetime friend, said that Betty's last word on earth was her husband's name, Alan. She received that info from Betty's assistant, Kirsten Mikolas, who was there in the final minutes of Betty's life. Holy fucking shit. That, uh, not, not gonna lie, that messed with my allergies pretty hard uh, when I came across that. That's, uh, that's real love. If you find a love like that, never let it go. Uh, I'm lucky to have found that myself with, uh, with the Queen of the Suck. Uh, when Betty was asked by uh, James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio that should heaven exist, what would she like to say to God, or, or rather have God say to her when she walked through the pearly gates, she replied, come on in, Betty. Here's Alan. God dang. What if she did see him at the end? Well, that's why she said his name. What if his spirit came for her as she passed? Maybe. Why not believe in that possibility, right? I know we can't prove shit like that, but uh, I certainly hope it's real. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Betty White Power has been sucked. I mean, Betty White. I had to say one last time. Betty White has been sucked. Love this episode. Uh, thanks again for voting in Space Lizards. Uh, and thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team. Thanks to Queen of uh, Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, for being my my very own Alan Ludden. Uh, thanks to the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Logan the Art Warlock Keith for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. And for running the socials with Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks to the All-Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. Thanks to Beefsteak and his mod squad running Discord. And thanks to producer Olivia Lee again for her initial research on this episode. Um, next week, let's get real weird. Let's get uh, cult, cult, cult. And let's talk a lot about aliens. Let's talk about the Raelians, a cult of sorts claiming to believe that humans were created by advanced alien scientists called the uh, uh, Elohim. Elohim told the Raelians that they're supposed to help change humanity for their scheduled UFO landing sometime in 2035. So fuck yeah, they're almost here. Uh, Maybe they'll show up this year, right? Maybe they'll show up early. Uh, It feels like a a good year for them, the aliens to show up. Uh, Raelians are super sex positive, have all all sorts of progressive ideas that make, you know, some good sense. They also have some uh, weird ideas, like how they think their founder, leader, and prophet, a half man, uh, half alien, is uh, Rael Maitreya, so weird that they think he's a half-alien prophet. His title sounds impressive, but in reality, he's a former French car racing enthusiast and wannabe rock star. Echo- echoes of Father Yote, uh, who just really wants to be uh, worshipped and fuck a lot. Uh, the group, not like most of the cults or religious movements we've covered, uh, the Raelians and their company, Clone Aid. We met some of them in the celebrity cloning conspiracy suck, claimed to have uh, successfully cloned a human. Uh, you know, uh, Eve in December of 2002, they didn't. Uh, they claimed uh, they cloned a bunch of other people, they didn't. And they've claimed a lot of other wild shit. 
And next week, we're going to meet them, try to find out, you know, why they're so obsessed with extraterrestrials. Uh, how many of them are there? What's their re- mission? What did alien scientists, why did alien scientists choose uh, Rael to be the new prophet after previously choosing Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad? I look forward to getting crazy with you all next week here on Time Suck. Uh, our world is a lot of things. It is, uh, it is never boring. Uh, now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Uh, Let's kick things off with a message of uh, support, I guess, for Alex Jones, who I aggressively shit on last week. Educated, open-minded, and veteran super sucker Jason Pierce writes, Mr. Cummins, I feel compelled to defend Alex Jones a bit. Maybe some of his his personal, as I feel attacked, like I'm some flaming dipshit or whatever you said about his listeners. I have a master's degree. I have, professional, I have a professional license in counseling in an unnamed state. I spend my professional time talking to others about cognitive distortions, intrusive thoughts, logic fallacies uh, they use to justify bad behavior, shit like that. I made it through a 20-year military career, have kids, house, wife, stuff, you know, savings account, investments. I consider myself a practical guy, yet I am a sucker for Alex Jones, and here's why. Now, I found Alex when I was in the military and lived in Turkey for a couple of years between 2007 and 2009. I used to tune into Alex frequently because of shift work and I had a lot of time on my hands. So I listened to lots of podcasts and his was one. I liked the three or four hour shows as he would dive deep into topics. You were hard on Alex and most of it rightfully so. However, you can't discount that guy. He was wrong on Sandy Hook. He has come out and said he was drinking a lot during that time of his life and he made a huge mistake. He's apologized many times for this. It's wrong. He doesn't have to be forgiven and you are allowed to hate him, but we all make mistakes. Some of them egregious, but mistakes, even several, should not completely define a person. Uh, You should understand he was talking about the NSA building giant facilities to suck up your data back in 2007 in that time frame. He was ranting about how your home appliances would connect to the internet and spy on you. Snowden released this info some four, six years later, and it's common knowledge these days. Alexa, Wemo switches, smart bulbs, smart TVs, your Apple phone listening into targeted advertisements, God knows what else, or four targeted advertisements. Uh, You mocked him about the pedophile rings, and he has been wrong on some of these issues, but he was talking about Fuck Island, powerful world leaders, world leaders and Epstein a decade ago, including how Bill Clinton and Epstein were buddies. He brought to light agent provocateurs in Seattle. Turns out the gay frog thing was off target, but true in a sense, pesticides can change frog sex. He was talking about Tower 7 when nobody else was covering it on 9-11, and some people thought that that was a conspiracy. Uh, We know that the building fell. How or why? I don't know. He openly discussed Gulf of Tonkin, which I would have never heard about. That sure as shit wasn't taught in history. There's no false flag lessons in school. The UAE makes it rain once a week. The CIA admits to trying to weaponize weather modification technology. This was nutter butter conspiracy stuff a few years ago, but he was covering it. He ranted about the elite using baby blood to prolong their life. There are scientific articles that have been coming out in the mainstream lately about the possible benefits of this. Some of the COVID vaccine conspiracy that he was ranting about is already slowly leaking out uh, that some of the vaccines enter the liver cells and alter the DNA. This is from a recent Swiss study. Let's hope he was as wrong about COVID vaccines as he was about Sandy Hook. I mean, it isn't like Pfizer paid the largest criminal fine in history or that Viox ever existed. Lastly, don't forget Bohemian Grove. That would make an interesting suck. Uh, The problem with Alex Jones is he's a poor communicator. He screams, gets angry, says that Hillary Clinton smells like sulfur and that they are trying to kill the whole world. If you can parse through ranting and raving and exaggerations, much of the information that he puts out is uncomfortably true. As far as supplements, yeah, they're probably bullshit. Can't defend that, but everyone's selling their own supplements and coffee for some reason. Uh, That's a big one. Anyway, that's all. Love the show and keep hammering. Hail Nimrod. Hail Bojangles. Hail Lucifina. Well, well, thank you, Jason. And yeah, thank you for your service. And as much as I hate to admit it, uh, yeah, you do bring up some good points, right? Uh, It would take too long for me to dissect them all properly today. But but yes, he was sharing some alarming info before it was common knowledge. 
in some cases. And yeah, and that does have some value. I can't disagree with that. I just still think the bad outweighs the good with him. And here's why. You are educated. You seem like you have strong critical thinking skills. Uh, You can weed out good info from bad. You're clearly looking into what he's talking about in a critical thinking manner. But is the majority of his audience doing that? I don't think so at all. I think too many accept a lot of what he says is truth. And, And I think as a businessman, he knows it's good for business to share really extreme ideas and push society into more and more distrust of the government and science, which leads directly to insane shit like harassing the parents of murder victims and the QAnon, uh, you know, conspiracy, capital riot stuff, you know. So I'm going to have to agree to disagree on his value overall. But I really like the email you sent it. Uh, have a great week. Keep on fact checking, uh, me included. Uh, Nimrod loves uh, well written dissent, makes me think uh, more than agreement does. Now an update on the 2017 Las Vegas shooting from the brother of someone who was there. Kick-ass sack Tyler Smeltz writes, Suckmaster, I've emailed him before, usually opening with a joke or something clever to get you laughing. Not today, bro. Before I get into it, my buddy Matt and I served in the army together. He's a friend, brother, and someone I'll gladly give my life for. Here's a story. Uh, and thank you for your service as well. Uh, Matt told our whole group that he was going to the concert. We were all excited for him. Told him to send pics. When I woke up the morning after the shooting, I checked my phone and I had 60 missed texts and calls, all asking the same question. Where the fuck is Matt? I called uh, out of work, kept calling his phone for three hours until he picked up. I didn't care. I needed to know my brother was okay. He finally answered. My lungs sank into my chest. All I could ask, bro, what happened? This is what he told me. He said, bro, it was crazy. Bodies dropping, blood everywhere. I didn't know what to do until uh, immediately everything we were taught and trained all just kicked in. I shielded a 19-year-old on the ground with my body as the bullets were still flying. At the break, I told her to run, don't stop. Then my buddy and I went to the hospital. We didn't give the doctors a chance. We got to the hospital 1130 that night, didn't leave until six the next morning, walked out with blood all over my clothes. None of it was mine. Uh, My brother got the equivalent of the Medal of Honor for civilians for his acts at the shooting. If you look through the pictures and see a blonde, short-haired man wearing a maroon shirt, shielding a young woman on the ground, that's Matt. I've seen that pic. Uh, Suckmaster, not even a little sorry for this email. My brother's a hero, and he's never wanted anything from anyone. Because in his words, I did what anyone with our training would do. Love your show. Five out of five stars, Sitch. Well, Sitch, thank you very much uh, for sharing your brother's story. And, uh, you know, your friends, uh, hail Matt, man. Doesn't sound like a crisis actor to me. Or a deep state puppet. Sounds like a fucking hero. Uh, the kind Ukraine are producing in mass right now. Also, by the way. Uh, so thank you again, Sitch. Now, another message from another kick-ass meat sack who knew uh, someone who died in that shooting. Mark Lastman writes, Yo, Captain Suck. I just listened to the latest suck in the Las Vegas shooting. And I want to give a big F you to the conspiracy nuts out there who think it was a fake. One of the girls I graduated high school with killed was killed in that shooting. Well, I didn't know her well enough to call her a friend. I remember her being a kind and caring meat sack. I knew that she had a life and that her family and, a cl- and close friends are most definitely not crisis actors with made-up lives and backstories. This year is our 20-year reunion. I know that those who are close to her will mourn again without her there. I can't think of anything harder than losing someone you love, especially a child, but then to have these critical thinkers, quote-unquote, calling you up and terrorizing you over nonsense would make the loss more than anyone should have to endure. Shame on them. May Nimrod smite them as only he can. Thanks for educating the masses and keeping us curious. Three out of five stars. No complaints. Mark. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, exactly. Too far, man. Never harass the victims of a mass tragedy. Even if you uh, don't think it actually happened, just bitch to your friends about it. Don't go after anyone ever for thinking they're a crisis actor. If that was even somehow true, well, I guess they wouldn't care if you went after them, would they? I mean, they were just playing a part, just an actor, just a job. Now a message from obvious deep state puppet Vanessa Wolf, who writes, Hey, Dan and the whole Bad Magic team, this week's suck hit closer to home than many because my sister was at the concert when the shooting happened. 
Her and her husband were celebrating him getting uh, uh, home from a tour of duty with the army just to be greeted with violence. Me and my mom were on the phone all night updating each other, waiting to hear from her. Finally, the next morning, we hear from them. Thankfully, they're completely fine, but so shaken up and doing what they could to help all night. My sister's a nurse, her husband being military. They helped people get out and patch up small wounds uh, of the people who got out with them. It was hard to see all the crazy bullshit that came out after. But unfortunately, people want terrible events to be fake just so it's not real, I guess. But also, fuck Alex Jones and hail Nimrod. Thank you guys for everything you do. Uh, More tales of heroism, right? Man, the world really is full of so many great, brave, wonderful people. Sometimes too much, you know, news or too many true crime podcast episodes can lead to us forgetting that. Uh, thank you, Vanessa, for reminding us, uh, yeah, that there are heroes out there and you, uh, you know, some of them speaking of wonderful. Let's end on a victory. Uh, kind and caring sack. Seth Parker writes, Hey Dan, sorry. I couldn't think of any witty silliness right now. I'll keep it short as I can. I was writing in to ask a favor. I've been listening to time sucks since 2017 and all other bad magic podcasts since their induction one day, a few years ago. While having a discussion, read rant with my mom about how do so few people have critical thinking skills. I mentioned the podcast. She asked me about it. After answering her questions, she decided to listen. She's been hooked ever since, and it gives us something to talk and laugh about together. Fast forward to last month, after struggling with weird blood issues doctors thought were linked to the vaccine, it was discovered that the real problem was she has acute lymphoblastic leukemia. As of writing this message, she has just concluded her first of eight rounds of chemo and is totally kicking its ass. Just wanted to ask if you could give her a shout out on the show. Her name is Karen. I know, LOL. And I know it would make her day and give her something to smile about as she starts this long fight against stupid fucking cancer. If you can't, no worries. But I had to try. Thank you for pushing us meat sacks to think critically and showing me I'm not the only person who still uses their brains. Praise Bojangles. Well, praise Bojangles, Seth. And hail Karen. Uh, Demand to talk to that cancer manager, Karen. And just keep kicking it in the fucking nuts. Uh, Channel some Betty White. Tenaciously do uh, all of your treatment uh, just as they instruct. Eat, get all your rest. Eat well. Meditate. I don't know. Masturbate. Whatever makes you feel good. And keeps your spirits up, right? Get to DJing, Karen. Uh, Hail all of you, you beautiful bastards. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sex. Go to something great this week. Love big, work hard. Don't tell yourself you're too old or, you know, whatever uh, you're trying to accomplish is too difficult. Channel some Betty fucking White. Keep on trucking and keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Once again, you're listening to Horace and Tess here on Milwaukee's number one easy listening adult contemporary radio station, 101.1 Cheese FM. And we are back. We are back from our uh, Finger Licking Friday. Uh, we gave the $50 KFC gift certificate to Bob Nelson, caller number five, kicking off the five o'clock soft rock block. Uh, we're going to pick up with Betty White. Wish you were here. Wish you were here. Wish you were here. Wish you were here. Someone's painting the leaves all wrong this year. Wish you were here. And don't go anywhere after listening to the song. Why have the birds changed their song this year? We got a pregnant lady bikini contest coming up at six. They're not shining the stars as bright. They've stolen the joy from the night. In the studio, Kenny Loggins. 
calling in right after Wish You Were Here. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.